Alright, what's good, what's good, what's good? Welcome to Reflections of a DJ The Road Podcast. We have a special edition. We are in on the record right now, OTR, here in the Park MGM. Uh, we got a special interview. I got my host, DJ Neva. Yo, what up? DJ D Miles. What's good, what's good? I got Jamie the Great. Yeah. We got a special guest host, the homie, DJ Eddie McDonald. What's up? From uh, Mac Agency. And then we have a very surprising guest. I'm very honored to have him here. Yeah. Also very nervous, and I'm, I'm also very curious to know why we wouldn't be on the show. Yes. But <laughs> we have, uh, I mean, this guy has more than 20 years in Las Vegas nightlife, probably over 25 years, uh, including his experience in Boston. He's a former managing partner of Light Group, former CEO of Win Las Vegas, currently the president of events and nightlife at MGM Resorts International. Sounds like a big title. I want uh, further explanation on that, please. Sure. We got Mr. Sean Christie in the building. Yeah. That's good. Thank you, thank you. We're honored, man, for you to come on our, yeah, our little, our little podcast. I'm you surprised. Know? I'm very excited. <laughs> I've been mean, looking forward looking, looking at the forward cast to of characters. How could I not be here? <laughs> I mean, you have a lot of history with Eddie and Neva. Yep. And I came later in the game. Sure. I mean, you guys basically opened Light here in Las Vegas, the first bottle service nightclub in las vegas yep right mm-hmm. yep. and um i mean you guys i i kind of came into the mix and uh you know i know you came from boston yeah and then you initially opened uh i would say what was it it was house of blues you, you, um in in las vegas you opened um, house of blues in las i didn't vegas. open house of blues okay. actually i i came after it was open okay uh, that that was my first gig in Vegas, and, and ultimately what brought me out here. Uh, Andy Massey, who came out and opened the House of Blues in Las Vegas prior to me coming out here, was my boss in Boston. And the very first House of Blues was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Mm. And the company that we both worked for, the Lions Group, was the local operator. So basically, you know, House of Blues Cambridge happened as a result of that. Uh, Andy went out to At- Atlanta to do the House of Blues Atlanta for the Olympics in 96. And as a result of that, he got the gig to come out and be part of House of Blues and Foundation Room Las Vegas. Mm. They offered me a job. I declined initially because I had some stuff going on in Boston. And then I end up out here, you know, the September, you know, before what was what was nine eleven two two thousand one yeah. so, yeah. so I, I was here September third two thousand was when I got here for the House of Blues. What changed wow. your mind to come out here to Vegas? Yeah, I mean, again, my grandfather was sick at that point way mm. back when. You know, he passed on R.I.P. And uh, once that happened, you know, then I was able to come out here because I wanted to be with him. You know, mm. during the last year of his life. So. Introducing the new like bottle service club here in Las Vegas. You know, the thing was is actually about bottle service. I think that light was the first one that did it in a meaningful way, Mm -hmm. but actually other people had been doing it. Uh, it. Ra had bottle service. Rum Jungle had bottle service. Actually, I was a a guest in Dre's, Cody Starrett, who's still in town. I mean, Mm -hmm. to sit at Dre's, you would have to get a bottle after hours. Mm. You have to get a bottle. So... I wouldn't say, and, and even Babies, uh, which was the precursor to Body English, they had bottle service too. So I, I wouldn't say that it was the first bottle service. Cause I'd just say we probably 
were the most high profile place that uh, when Andrew Sasson came out and he mm-hmm. was my boss, where he you, you had to have bottle service to sit down. I think it was a little bit looser at the other places, but light was the one that, you know, really was strict and enforced and basically it was you, mandatory. You had to have, you know, a bottle, if you will. Well, yeah. it kind of changed, like, I guess what would say the concept of like nightclubs and bottle service in Las Vegas. Sure. I mean, and it's, and it's lasted for over 20 years now. Yeah. Right. Well, bottle service is nothing new. Yeah. I mean, I'd been going to Miami for winter music conference mm-hmm. and if you sat down, you know, I saw, uh, Josh Wink in the main room at living room and King Britt was in the back for uh, oh, wow. WMC 97 wow. and uh, Naomi Campbell coincidentally I didn't, I didn't know anybody I just had a connection to get into the club mm-hmm. and my brother who's four years older than me him and his friends made money yeah and I, I had no money but we were able to get a table but at the living room in Miami and chaos and all these places in the 90s it was the same thing New York if you went to New York at at the original light it was the same thing you had to mm-hmm. sit down or, yeah. or or jet east or mm-hmm. definitely jet east yeah, yeah conscious yeah, point mm-hmm. yeah. any of these places you had so it in vegas light was probably the one that put it on a map in a meaningful way but it it had been around in america 10 years prior even do you see it changing though because because it seems like the new generation doesn't understand or they don't really see the benefits or the the value in bottle service do you have you noticed that yeah, I, I think the biggest difference with the, you know, new generation is uh, new generation doesn't have any money yet. Yeah. Millennials, everybody's sitting there sweating, oh, millennials this, millennials that. When they have money, they'll spend it like everyone else spends money. Um, <clears throat> I think the idea that, you know, on the record's a good example of something that has a nice blend of both in the sense that you can probably come here as a, you know, a guest that's just a, you know, we'd call general admission and have just as much fun as, you know, bottles, a bottle service customer, because you can, you can come into this room, you can go to a karaoke room, you go in the main club, indoor, outdoor patio, all the, it's a, it's experiential. So that speaks to a younger generation, but when you get money and the club is crowded, if you got the money, you're going to get to a place and pay up mm-hmm. so that you can have your own spot. That's all it's about. It's really not about, uh, hey, I, I don't want to pay for the bottle service. It's I don't have any money to pay for the bottle service right. yet. And give them another five, ten years of the money and they'll they'll start gambling. They'll start taking bottle service. What's really gone down is more um, champagne that's probably the thing in in one of the biggest differences in the past five years is that, you know, it's cooler to get a bottle of tequila than it is to get a bottle of Dom Dom. You know, the status symbol, we all know, New York, et cetera. Right. Yeah. You know, you had to get a bottle of Cristal. Cristal that was yeah. the ultimate baller status. Right. The ultimate baller, ball, uh, baller status now is if I got a bottle of Classe Azul, that is I've made it. You know, I get to ring the bell. Yeah, and so the thing <laughs> is, or 1942, or anything like that. So, uh, where you know we used to be able to get twenty five hundred dollars for a bottle of Cristal, and now people are just saying, you know what, I'm I'm okay, maybe I'll pay four or five, six hundred bucks for a bottle of Tito's or whatever, 
champagne sales have really gotten hit because I think that consumers by and large, um, that's where they've decided to kind of trade down because also if I get that bottle of Classe Azul, I'm going to get five glasses out of the champagne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I also think that hip hop culture, which usually leads, I think hip hop culture is also saying, okay, with Diddy or with Jay-Z mm-hmm. or with Drake, even though he's got his champagne and things like that. I think that usually it starts in urban culture and then trickles down almost unanimously over generations. So I think where even in spirits and, and liquor and all hundred percent, really? I think, I think it's, it always in again in my opinion what i've seen being a 45 year old guy in clubs yeah is that most trends start in urban culture and and then you know basically uh then it you know kind of trickles out into the suburbs because urban culture defines what's cool and is always up first and that and then you know, kids like me who grew up in the outskirts of Boston pick that up and, and then it becomes mainstream. But but it always starts there, in my opinion. And when you were at Light Group, you guys opened your first venue was light, obviously. Right. Yeah. And then you guys had like multiple restaurants and multiple lounges and venues. You guys had mm-hmm. like Caramel. I think you guys had uh, Jet. Which opened yep. later, which, which actually was the second club, second mm-hmm. club, which ultimately <clears throat> brought me out to Vegas, um, and then you guys had Mist and Treasure Island, which I forgot about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you had two restaurants, Stack and Fix, Stack and Fix, which yeah. was kind of your was that the first venture into restaurant, pretty much. Yeah, what happened was is uh, we were doing the I think it was the second anniversary of Light, and we brought in Leo DiCaprio, mm-hmm. and yeah. he had gone to dinner at. Uh, nine steakhouse and nine yeah. steakhouse in the and palms at the palm so he was coming in and you know he was kind of our celebrity guest for light again first or second anniversary i kind of forget but he had come from the restaurant and he was talking so i, I was with him and andrew was with him Sasson, and he had said hey by the way really what you should be doing is i just came from nine steakhouse and again i'm paraphrasing everything yeah just came from Nine Steakhouse, you should do that. And Fix, which is currently there today, was called, uh, I think it was called Sam's or something like that. Yeah, yeah, Sam's American Grill. Yeah. yeah. Whatever it was. It, it just wasn't working. It was next to the club. And he said, basically, you should do Nine. That was actually the first um, anniversary. anniversary. The first anniversary? Because I did the second anniversary. And, and um, Fix was open. Was open, yeah. Okay, so we tied in. I think fix on the second, I think caramel on the third, maybe yeah, mm-hmm. some version of that. Yeah. But actually it was, uh, fix was, uh, Leo DiCaprio's idea because he loved nine. And then we hired Brian Massey, uh, Oliver Wharton actually mm-hmm. put it, actually, I think oh, wow. we hired Oliver first, whatever it was, but yeah. it was really kind of Leo's idea initially. And well, I never knew that. Wow. I didn't know that. That's crazy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And then typically you guys are like Light Group was a management group, right? Yeah. So you guys, so the basically the casino hotels would hire you guys or they would, how would it work? They'd give you, they'd take a commission of sales because what I'm, what I'm starting to see is that, you know, later after the Light Group, you moved on to the win and you opened like the first boutique Lush club which mm-hmm. would be blush by the way it was just an ultra lounge mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i just wanted to come up with a gimmick 
because I saw Boutique Hotel. I was like, okay, I'm sick of hearing Ultra Lounge. Anytime I hear something often, you know, terms in pop culture that become boring, I don't want to use them again. So if you tell me you're going to plank, I'm going to tell you, okay, come up with something else now, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, the big trend at that time led probably by places like taboo or the place at Mirage, which is now still, um, Oh, uh, oh yeah. Revolution revolution. Yeah. There, there was this explosion of ultra lounges and I was so sick of seeing that. I wanted to say ultra lounge because it means a lounge that has, dance floor with a cool DJ it's like a big and seating, mm-hmm. but I was tired of seeing it. So I just said, you know what? Boutique hotels, boutique nightclub. I'm going to be the first boutique nightclub, even though it's an ultra lounge. And, and it gave me a little gimmick. Right. Mm-hmm. So I just called it a boutique nightclub. But anyhow, so I had with Las Vegas nightlife group, a management deal for society, which was a cafe blush, mm-hmm. uh, boutique nightclub ended up, uh, doing Andreas and then Encore Beach Club and Surrender. Those were all management contracts. And at the end of that, basically, I was doing so many other things in the company that were meaningful to the company at that time uh, that. At Win. Yeah. At, yeah. at Win, that I didn't have the ability or time to flex my company outside of that building that. I decided to become an executive because I was able to trade out, okay, if I'm going to come in-house exclusively, which I already was anyhow, mm-hmm. then all I cared about was really learning other facets of the overall business. So that's how I ended up becoming an executive. And that's why theoretically it became in-house. It wasn't about, oh, we want to bring everything in-house. It, it was more a matter of my personal relationship with the organization and us working together to figure out, you know, what's best for the company and best for me. And then, then, then it makes sense to have everything in house. So that's how it ended up in house. And as it relates to MGM in a big company, you can't do one of anything. Mm -hmm. You you have to do all types of stuff. It just so happens that because I am here that the, uh, you know, group and team that is collaborating every day with everybody in this company and, that I know how to do that within a resort culture. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was, is, hey, we wanna have a more meaningful, active marketing program led by nightlife and daylife. And I think that sitting in Park MGM, it's appropriate because now this seems to be the place that's maybe the most relevant in town. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that has to do with a lot of things, including entertainment, because we have amazing residents like Gaga and Bruno Mars and things like that. Well, you mm-hmm. you have the Park Theater, which is right. basically connected to Park MGM. And yeah. I just want our listeners to know when we speak of the MGM, like uh, basically resorts. resorts, we're talking about the Aria Hotel, the Bellagio Hotel, the MGM Grand, Mandalay Bay, the Mirage, New York, New York, Luxor, Excalibur, and Park this MGM. your new project, which yeah. is the Park MGM, which was formerly Monte Carlo. And that's just yeah. in Vegas. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's just in Vegas. That's just in Vegas. Yeah. And, and also T-Mobile. T-Mobile the, Arena. T-Mobile the Arena. The park, you wow. know, which is outside in the building. So, you know, look, it's a giant company. And so giant companies need to be current and topical. You know, I have an amazing relationship with the president of this hotel. His name's Patrick Miller. And so, you know, led by my boss, his name's actually Anton. He's the 
portfolio president and Patrick's boss, and of course, Jim Mearns, the chairman and mm-hmm. CEO of the company, things like that. You know, Park MGM set out uh, not under my vision to become this cool place. I, I came in a couple of years ago, and one of my, my first meeting actually was in Park with another boss I have, I have a lot of bosses, uh, <laughs> Bill Hornbuckle. And he just said basically, hey, we, we wanna really, are, the ambition here, again, led by that Park Theater in T-Mobile, those are really the anchors yeah. of this property. Uh, you know, there are many anchors of the property, but you know, that's kind of the start of the conversation. You know, go in there and integrate and come up with concepts and, you know, get integrated and work hand in hand with the property to try to make this cool and current, which is ongoing. Sean, I have a question. It seems like there wasn't really a a rollout from the change from Monte Carlo to Park MGM. Right. It just kind of happened. Sure. Is was that strategic or was that uh, from your opinion? Well, I think what happened was, is, you know, you have an option to close mm-hmm. or you have an option to kind of go under construction while you're open. I think that the strategy that MGM prior to me coming in was we're going to keep it open because remember park theater has been open for, I don't know, two and a half or three years yeah. mm-hmm. with all that construction. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, then you have other places like right now the hard rock closed and they're closing and they're reopening as Virgin. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, tomato, tomato. Uh-huh. And I think that, you know, the only way to understand what works is to get a little time under your belt and look back. And all I can tell you is that sitting here today, park MGM uh, led by artists like Lady Gaga and Bruno Mars, Park Theater, Golden Knights at T-Mobile, Italy, Nomad, all these things, and, and all the things that we're doing here as well, that it seems like it's working great now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do, you, uh, do you try to definitely push all the venues pretty much because, I mean, in Park MGM, you have Best Friend with Roy Choi's Restaurant. Yeah. You have Italy. Yeah. You guys just opened uh, Mama Rabbit, which Mama is Rabbit. like a tapas tequila bar. I, yeah. I, don't, I haven't been there yet. It's and a then, lot of fun. You can like, you can like, well, Jamie, like Jamie DJs at all okay. your properties. Yeah, pretty much. I, I DJ at Mama Rabbit and Best Friend. And the, and the cool thing about it is that yesterday, unfortunately, Let him tell you. unfortunately, <laughs> Lady Gaga canceled. And because there's so much to do in this property that everything just got filled up. Like, I walked into Best Friend and it was jam packed. Like, you couldn't sit anywhere. And then Mama Rabbit was packed. Like, people can gamble inside. So there's a lot of. Uh, but are, are you guys really shifting when it comes to the direction musically or event wise at all your venues, especially OTR, which would be like the nightclub venue? Mm-hmm. Right. Are you shifting everything to basically kind of be an after party for what happens at Park Theater? So if there's a Bruno Mars there or if there's, I don't know who, you know, whoever's the residency, uh, resident acts there, like a Gaga, mm-hmm. Janet Jackson. Janet Jackson. Uh, are you really catering to that, and is it, is it really kind of shifting everything in the in the in the hotel and the nightclub? So, the, you know, there's a lot of venues here. So there's Juniper that kind of when the concerts let out, a lot of the people end up there. So mm-hmm. we'll play, which is like a casino lounge. Yeah, it's yeah. a really cool. It yeah. actually won mm-hmm. you know best lounge from Eater last year. But it's a gin bar that's a cocktail bar. That's where we partnered with Craig, a guy named Craig Charler. He's a head mixologist from the company, and he's amazing. So actually, I think people go there because there's experiential cocktails, for example. Mama Rabbit is kind of a, is a you know, step toward a nightclub in the sense that it's a tequila bar. It has gaming. It has 
DJ, it has live live performance. So there's just a lot of, it's kind of like on the record in the sense that I think the consumer is demanding more things to do in less traditional ways. So like Mama Rabbit was the idea that I can go somewhere and I don't have to leave and I can do multiple things. I can eat. Tequila is going to be the hook in terms of, you know, the reason how I can talk to the consumer. We had a amazing cultural partner named Sprecia Lopez who kind of guided us on that journey to put Oaxacan food and tequila and mezcal. We hired an artist, Okuda San Miguel, who did, you know, art. So there's art, there's tequila, there's amazing design. You know, we have custom chandelier from Andrea Claire Studios. There's gaming, there's entertainment, there's a cool DJ booth that looks like a flower cart. And actually, (laughs) unbeknownst to a lot of people, we punched a hallway through into Best Friend with the idea that, and it's, it's manifesting now, that those two things can connect. And I, not only can you go to Best Friend and get great Korean barbecue, you can listen to great music, there's a really cool bodega up front, that all of that becomes one to a certain extent too. Mm-hmm. And what Park is, is a place that I can go from, within a 75 yard walk, I can go from Italy, which has 19 experiences, I can go to Best Friend, which has several experiences, I can go to Mama Rabbit and do a bunch of cool and fun things. I could sit down with Eddie. I could get something to eat. And while I wait to get my food, I could gamble. I could listen to music. I can get tequila. And then as I continue on, there's a sports bar. There's Juniper on the record, which is above. But that's Nomad Bar, Nomad Restaurant. So the idea is that there are a lot of fun things to do in the building because in Las Vegas, as we all know, Mm -hmm. it's about giving people opportunity to let their hair down and have fun. And if they have fun, they'll come back. So when you're when you putting all of these uh, things together, and let, I want to focus kind of on OTR because sure, uh, someone with your background, I want to talk about this because you opened Blush and then you opened like a, a mega club, yeah. right? You went from a boutique club, quote unquote, mm-hmm. to like a huge mega club and probably maybe one of the biggest day clubs in Vegas at the time. Uh, and it was uh, Encore Beach Club and Surrender, which mm-hmm. and uh, everyone attributes you to introducing a lot of the EDM DJs and the EDM scene sure. to Las Vegas. Um, and this was after your success at Blush. And I, I got to talk. I want to talk a little bit about Blush before we get into everything else. Sure. Just because with what you did with Blush, I feel like you kind of over exceeded expectations on what an ultra lounge or a boutique club could be. Sure. And I just remember the industry night that you guys had. And I kind of wonder now, I look back 15, 10 years ago in Las Vegas and then there was industry nights everywhere. There was a Tuesday at pure. There was Monday at jet (coughs) Sunday at light Thursday at Tao. Thursday at Tao. Uh, you know, Wednesday at, I remember Surrender was one of the options, and then another one would be I, I, like Tangerine, yeah. right? It was Tangerine, yeah. Tangerine, Tangerine yeah. It was yeah. It was yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, like people who used to hit me up back in the day, and I'd be like, "You need to go here. The DJ's here. You need to go here. The DJ's here." Now I feel like there there really isn't an identity for an industry night, and I wanted to ask you. I mean, the climate of nightlife right now feels like there's an oversaturation. It's, it feels like something's a little off. 
with Vegas, but you know, I, just because I don't feel that there's an industry night anywhere. Like on a Sunday, I don't know where to turn people. I don't sure. know where to turn people on certain nights. And I'm I'm wondering how important is an industry night in a city like Las Vegas? And then how how like if if a club has a successful industry night, does that translate to their weekend? Does it carry over to the weekend numbers? You know what I mean? Yep. Um, good comment question. Every club in Las Vegas has an industry night is number one. And <clears throat> so our, the industry night on the record is Wednesdays, mm -hmm. which, you know, I don't know. Some people have played, some people haven't, but a, a lot of people have played. Yeah. And if you don't have a relevant industry night where local people, which industry just means local because the vast majority of the people in Las Vegas, you know, work in some way, shape or form on the strip. I mean, not everybody, but the people who kind of define where people go work at relevant casinos, restaurants, bars, whatever it might be, yeah. retail shops, etc. So the way that it especially works now with social media is in the way it used to work is you would get off the plane and you would ask your cab driver, your room service person, the person who is at the front desk, whatever it is, where do I go? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at light, as an example, or we did Sundays at jet, we did Mondays at blush. I did Tuesdays right. at surrender. I did Wednesdays and you know, here we do Wednesdays. I was like Wednesday nights, but if local people don't, if you do not get them to go to your club, then the way it works now is they don't post on their Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. I'm here. And then that spreads out to their circles. And once industry people and local people start putting it now on their social media, which is, is a, a form of buzz or word of mouth, right. mm -hmm. that kind of gives you the check mark that, okay, you know, here's 15 places. I've seen five of these because my friend crooked is always on Wednesday nights. I don't know what on the record is, but it seems like that Eddie and crooked and never are going up and hitting, you know, up this spot. I want to go check that out. Cause it looks pretty cool. So it in the city of Las Vegas, it always starts with the locals. So every single club has a, an industry night. It's whether or not it's popular or not, or done well or not. Mm-hmm. I remember it used to be like Sundays. I, I think it might yeah. have been you in like 2001 or 2002 when we reconnected. Somebody said, you know, if you, whoever owns Sundays owns yeah. the, the, that, the that, crown. That used to, so the way it used to work was if you had Sunday nights, you know, that was the defining moment for your club. If you could go after on Sundays and get it because House of Blues had Sunday nights with Grandmaster right. Flash, mm -hmm. who was a resident DJ there. And then when... You know, Andy went over to light, brought me over with Andrew, and then we said, well, we're going to take Sundays. <laughs> um, then we started doing DJs, you know, everyone from Eddie, Eddie, um, Eddie to Neva. But in addition to that, we started doing DJ AM, Mark Ronson, Stretch Armstrong. Mm -hmm. You also and, had and Flash. Like that. Yeah, Flash. Flash. Flash yeah. And I don't know, you know, a, a lot of Rock those types and, of people. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People of said types he, of people. Uh, we we spoke with Shecky, right? Yeah, Shecky. Sh shout out to Shecky Green. Shecky. And uh, he was telling us that, you know, Light was actually DJ Am's first, yeah. like, 
high-profile Vegas, yeah. uh, Vegas gig. I mean, that was your choice. And I, I kind of wanted to know, where did you hear him from and, and how did that come about? Yeah, so uh, I was talking to Sheck, who I had just met via Justin Hoffman, actually, and he'd said, hey, Shecky, you know, started The Source magazine. And I was like, wow, really? Like, you know, white guy from Harvard started The Source. I had yeah. no clue who he was or anything mm-hmm. like that. I met him at Caramel. And he came to me, and I was aware of DJ AM from his party um, in yes. L.A. Uh, the heck, was it banana split? Ice cream, yeah, banana split. Whatever, no, it was ice cream before, Sunday? No, it was the, a, before it was that. Before banana split. split. Yeah. I know Whatever, he's a hot DJ in L.A., yeah. and yeah. I'd gotten to Vegas. I'd started going to L.A. off, and he, he was the guy. But this was way Palmas. before that, but this was way before it was that. that time, Palmas, right? I believe. No, no, no. Actually, he was playing in L.A. at that time, uh, and he was playing for Brent Bolthouse. Whatever the Brent Bolthouse party was. It wasn't banana time. split. No, though, banana split came later. Whatever it was. you know, I'm not sure if it was Las Palmas. They all kind of blend together. But he was kind of the cool up and coming guy. Right. So Shecky came to my office and I was like, look, I, I want to bring in cool DJs like I used to do in Boston. In Boston, it was all about uh, bringing in New York DJs. Like mm-hmm. anybody who was cool in New York, <laughs> if you brought them to Boston and just said, you know, DJ mighty my life, New York city, you had a night right. mm-hmm. because people didn't, there was no internet or anything. So anyhow, I became aware of AM Shecky had a relationship, and again, I, f- I forget some of the specifics. We did the party. It ended up being, you know, like one of the best nights of all time That's at crazy. light. Uh, we had AM back one more time, I think, and then Body English stole them from us, over-offered on them, yeah. mm-hmm. and got them to play Sunday nights on their Sunday, which yeah. ultimately they ended up, again, we had a nice run at light on Sundays, probably four or five years, but because of DJ AM, because of DJ Vice, they ended up really becoming the de facto place, but we had already had a three, four year run. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it was all good. Yeah. Uh, but that was really kind of also the start of like vice in the city of Las Vegas being a prominent figure. Right. Mm-hmm. And we also had, but in that same series, we also had, uh, you know, Mark Ron, it went, I remember, I'm sure you even have the flyer. Nice. You're no, you had like um, the big city DJs. Yeah, we, we had, yeah, we had baseball AM, cards, right? And we had we did baseball cards, did everything. Yeah. But <laughs> we had that, that particular series was AM, Ronson, Stretch, and my, my CD release party. Yeah, and his CD <laughs> release party. And it was called like Big, big City. Big, and, and you big also City had, DJ. Um, big City Flash. DJs. And, and uh, had Flash too. Flash, yeah. Flash was a buddy of mine because mm-hmm. of House of Blues. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. And we brought him over to Jet too for a little while. Brought him over to Jet. Yeah. What's up, Flash? Yeah. And and Hurricane. Oh yeah, my man. Right. Boy, yeah. <laughs> my man. How did, how did you guys feel uh, losing DJs like that, losing residents, or, or like? Eh, I just you know over the years. So you know my background in Boston. Yeah. Was also you know nightclubs. <laughs> right. And so I booked nightclubs in Boston too. So I had already been in the nightclub game before. Like I was 26. I, I started young in nightclubs. But um, I started booking bars as a way to promote them so that they would let me bartend. Like that was the quid pro quo was, hey, I'll come in, I'll promote. But I, I want the shift at the main bar. Mm-hmm. But, I'll, but I became really good at promoting. So then I started cutting door deals with Andy at Bill's Bar. And Justin Hoffman and I had the best Wednesday night at Bill's Bar. We did a, a take on, you know, Soul Shack, basically. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, basically we, we kind of ripped off Nels. 
And I heard y'all, y'all kind of ripped off from Soul Kitchen. All, that was all the party the in New York. I mean, it was all that. Yeah. It was that entire genre. So it was like, you know, Justin had done, uh, on Thursday nights upstairs at Axis, he was doing something called Psychedelic Soul Shack. Mm-hmm. And downstairs, so downstairs at Axis, which again was Andy's thing, he was doing DJs, primarily, I don't know, all the whatever, cream DJs and stuff like that. And upstairs, though, which was the party, which Justin DJed, was called Psychedelic Soul Shack. And it was primarily an old school hip hop party. Mm-hmm. And so that was my favorite party. So I took over Wednesdays at Bill's and it was dead. We promoted really hard and had Justin. And uh, coincidentally, you know, just one of those moments, uh, <laughs> you know, so Boston didn't have celebrities back then. Like a celebrity, if a celebrity walked into a, a nightclub in Boston, I mean, the world's, you know, everybody knew the next day. It just, it never happened. Uh-huh. Now, now it happens, you know, all the time there. And they even get the Red Sox, stuff like that. But we really didn't have celebrities. So on the first night that Justin and I did, Justin being the DJ of this party on a Wednesday, and I forget what movie it was, but Forrest Whitaker showed up. and it was like from that moment on that was the party and it was literally because it was cool music i had done a really good job promoting with a couple of my partners Mm -hmm. and for whatever reason forrest whitaker randomly showed up that's weird and so from that day on that that was like the spot so because of forrest whitaker Whitaker. (laughs) because of a lot of things but really the you know the ghost dog that that was like the you know that was the The extra sauce Uh uh-huh yeah (laughs) and so out of that i started doing thursdays at karma club similarly we had a lot of success and then really what happened was is this this club that again andy was the general manager at he made me a manager and the long story short was is in order to fill that club john debo who is a DJ. I don't know if you guys know him. He's, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he's, you know, he's been around forever. What up, John? I don't know if you're around, but John was booking Axis and was really booking Sasha and Digweed, Dave Seaman, Dave Ralph, uh, yeah, you Nick know, Warren, all the old school, yeah. Nick Warren, you know, this whole import crew. And so what I started doing at Karma to compete because the clubs were next door is I was struggling because actually what I tried to do initially was book boogie nights and and it worked for like you know a very short period of time and i only did that because i had seen jason and noah do it once mm-hmm. and they had a big crowd and it ended up fizzling out but i i was trying things like that like boogie nights like a like a disco 70s like, party. yeah and then yeah. i was trying things whatever the version in boston of like again steel pant like cover bands because yeah. I, I didn't know how to fill it because i went from a 200 person bar to like a 1400 person club but i was a club kid so i'm like you know what at the end of the day, this is the music I like. And I went to Andy and pitched him. And Justin actually was kind of feeding me the right names. Mm-hmm. And so then I started just saying, okay, you know what? Who's cool in the New York clubs? Who are the big names? And I focused solely on Frankie Bones, who was a resident DJ in 96 for us or seven. Mm-hmm. Roger Sanchez. Wow. Wow. Uh, you know, Hex Hector. Mm-hmm. Um, Dave Waxman, who still laughs to this day about it, who's now president of uh, Ultra Records. And I did a flyer, which I actually brought to him one day uh, that was a Miami license plate that said Waxman. (laughs) You know, just as a fun thing. But I kind of went after the New York 
type DJs, Danny you know, or something like not, that. not even those. Cause I did, we didn't have the money to do the big ones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was kind of going after again. Um, I did, you know, uh, Charles feel good, bad boy, Bill, um, you know, anything I could get my hands on that I liked and was in my price range. I did deep dish. Oh yeah. Um, wow. yeah. You know, so a lot of those types of things. Cause then what happened was, is on Lansdowne street at that time, there was a 1200 person club, 1800 person club and a 3000 person club. And so it ended up being that I started, you know, I was booking karma club and I started doing all those things like, uh, I, the first time fat boy slim came to America, I brought him in and mm. it was because Justin Hoffman was all over me saying, Oh my God, you know, you got a fat boy slim, fat boy. Slim. I didn't even know who he was. Mm-hmm. And also another one of those lightning in a bottles. I brought him to WBCN to promote, uh, that album, uh, you right about on, now, whatever that album was come a long way, baby. Yep. And so he had just, I actually thought initially, I didn't know even what Fatboy Slim was, but I brought him to WBCN. A caller called in and said, as I was in the studio with him, uh, you know, I want to hear that band, that song, that, you know, uh, that artist, uh, you know, uh, right about now. And he starts singing it as he's doing a live interview. <laughs> and actually on the release, when you play that song, you'll hear that interview, oh, wow. which he then dubbed into the single. <laughs> And actually, so if you, if you, you know, right now play that song, you'll hear that intro oh. that I was sitting next to him as his first time in America. Wow. Oh, and it was also his first time in Boston That's cool. and I brought him in and his agent who, you know, I still know today she works for WME, Sam Kirby. Mm-hmm. I don't think she's the agent anymore, but so I, I got friendly with him for a second. Fat boy, his name's Norman, Norman cook. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I would read all the DJ magazines like mix mag and mm-hmm. all those old school. So I was aware of him, but really it was because I was friends with Justin. Right. And Justin was so on top of music wow. and Justin would, you know, play the after hours mm-hmm. at karma because Boston closed it too. So, you know, we were bringing in, you know, Armand. And so, and then I end up at the big club. And so, which became big. It was, it was called Avaland and it would four or 5,000 people. Jeez. And, uh, actually coincidentally. So Tom Mello booked it who, you know, some people know Legendary. what's mm-hmm. up, Tom, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he's still in the game and Fedor Benucci who works at cosmopolitan right now. I think mm-hmm. he's the director. And I think he's still there and Debo and our office actually <laughs> was under, uh, there was a bar. So all of this were warehouses that were built out, mm-hmm. all of these clubs. And so I took over as the general manager, also the Mamakin Music Hall. And so underneath the Music Hall, which was, you know, Mamakin, the name of the bar was Mamakin. They had a playhouse and they had a music hall that was 1,800 people. But my offices were their studio, but they only showed up once. So what ended up, what ended up happening was is, Myself, Tom Mello, John Debo, and Fedor ended up taking over their studios and they became our offices. And so like all that stuff was happening. So Mello did Friday nights and I started booking again, what we used to refer to as like, I, I would do the Guido nights and I would bring in, you know, That's you know, we met, I met, I met you on in Boston when you booked Johnny vicious. Cause that was my best so friend. I booked from Johnny vicious, Hex best. Hector. Yep. Actually, Mello on the bigger, well, on the bigger ones, Mello really had the relationship. So he brought in Razor and Guido. He brought in Teneglia. Was Mello also doing parties in New York at the time as well? 
Uh, you know what? I think he was. Yeah, he he always had that. Because I remember seeing connection. his name all over town doing yeah, parties he, back he, in the days. He was doing all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So so my point is, is by the time I got to Las Vegas when I was 26, mm -hmm. I had been in that game, you know, competing ferociously in Boston for about five six years. So when I came to town, really not a lot of people were doing it. So I was kind of like, okay, well this is a way to fill the club. So even at the House of Blues. You know, I booked Paul Oakenfold. I booked, you know, one of Perry Farrell's first DJ performances. Mm -hmm. I brought Frankie Bones out. It didn't work. Uh, it just, it didn't work. It just, it fell flat. And I was like, oh my God, my favorite DJ's coming. Frankie Bones, Frankie Bones. And it, mm -hmm. it just, you know, so again, when I, I came to Vegas, I had already had a lot of experience booking talent or DJs. You know, I was booking Jam Master J and Scribble and, you know, all that stuff. Too. You were booking the Music Hall and Sponda, right? Which was the upstairs. Uh, yeah. Well, I started actually, um, you know, so right before I left, I foundation room was private. Mm -hmm. And so it's like membership only it was or membership something. only. Yeah. So basically I put a team together, which was Jesse Waits and Mike Fuller. Mm -hmm. Fuller came up with the name Godspeed and, you know, I launched it with them. It was under my direction originally. And then after I left to go to the light group, Fuller ended up taking it over and making it successful for years and years after. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I actually had hired Fuller and Jesse was working with me at the House of Blues. And so, you know, obviously Jesse was really popular. So the three of us kind of launched that night together. But, wow. you know, I was booking the music hall as it related to late night stuff. Like I'm obviously a huge Daft Punk fan. And so Madonna came to town and her musical director at that time in the two in 2001 was Jacques Leconte. Yeah. And, you know, so he had Le Rhythm Digital. He had, you know, DNA with Daft Punk. And I was like, I don't even know who Jacques Leconte is, but I know that he's connected to Daft Punk, so I'm going to book him. Mm -hmm. So it was stuff like that. I didn't even really know what I was doing, but just trying things out. When, uh, how important right now, in this climate right now with social media, how important is a good DJ versus a DJ with a heavy social media presence in your opinion. Yeah. I think that a good DJ is like, if you've got, if you go to a good restaurant and they have bad food, it's the same thing. It might have all this hype, but then when you get there, you're disappointed. Mm -hmm. So for me, I've always been a DJ snob in the sense that any club, if I don't like the DJ, they're out. I don't care. You start playing bad. I'm <laughs> all about the guests and I'm all about how I feel. And so for me, I don't, I care as it relates to having a good party, but the magic is, is hopefully someone that has the ability to market themselves and have good social media, mm -hmm. but also delivers. So I'll take someone that has, is not on Instagram if they kill it in the club, because no matter what, if, if like I or my team, if we do our job, right. That shouldn't matter. It's a piece. It's not the only piece in some cases, unless you get into really big places, which are more almost like concert halls, but for nightclubs, if you will. Because when, when a venue uh, has multiple DJs coming in mm -hmm. and they're switching DJs, yeah, uh, is that for an attraction? Is it to market something new? Or is it just you're testing people out? What's because I always well, want to get bored. I mean, you think you know, so? Yeah. I mean, look, the staff can can the staff can make or break you. So I used mm -hmm. to laugh, you know, uh, mighty my Milo. We all know him, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when I was at Wynn, 
I always thought Milo was one of the best DJs in town. And so, but I would always have, so I was at Win for 10 years. Milo was with me the entire way for the entire decade. Yep. Mm-hmm. Played everything. From played Blush it. to... Blush to Surrender. To Surrender, TBC, Encore, Beach when Club. When I took yeah. over all the Win Nightlife, Excess, everything. Mm-hmm. I always thought, you know what? No matter what, the music would be good if I put Milo on. He, can, he opened for everybody. He closed for everybody. Right. He could hold the night down if they didn't show up. Or he could hold the night by himself. And he mm-hmm. could play every genre. EDM, old school hip hop. It, it didn't matter if I put Milo in, mm-hmm. there was good music. So right. I, but because he was there so often, the managers, the staff, everybody would always be like, we're so sick of Milo. He, you know, he sucks. I would hear things like that. Mm-hmm. The thing is, is I'm skilled enough to understand that that's just their fatigue of hearing the same thing over and over and over. And they also, you know, the common complaint, which I'm sure you guys hear all the time, is he plays the same thing every night meaning hey you know i know you know eight songs in a row that he's going to play because he's got a good rhythm with edits and remixes and it blends nicely at this time and at the end of the day if it works it works Mm -hmm. but the thing is is that if the staff gets tired of you there's noise around it so you have to switch it up because the people who are there every night Mm-hmm. They don't want to hear the same thing, so you have to keep it moving. Yeah, mm-hmm. every DJ's done. I, I dealt with it for of course. Yeah. I've been yeah. dealing with it my whole life. Just yeah. the staff. Look, the staff. If the staff likes what you're doing, they become the best promoters. Right. If they don't like what you're doing for whatever reason, they also can sink you. Mm-hmm. They can make you or break you. They can make you or break you is mm-hmm. a better way of saying it. So it's very important to, as much as you can, be cognizant of the way they feel. Because they become, in some regards, your best promoters. And then one of the issues, like I brought up with the industry night, is that I feel like there's no identity to a nightclub anymore. Mm-hmm. So uh, because they change DJs so often, right? and some DJs are good, some of them I don't know, some of them I know are okay, and I just don't know who, where anyone is anymore, so there's no resident DJs anymore, do you know? So I was just wondering... To me, whenever I would go out, for example, like I love Eddie McDonald and Pichavoy in sure. OTR at, on the record, uh, in the patio, in the bus. I love you guys there. So whenever I'm there, I want to hear you guys. You know, but sometimes I'll go there. There'll be another DJ, and I'm like, man, this wasn't the this wasn't the uh, the experience I had last time. Last and Saturday, it, last was Saturday, uh, yeah, Eddie yeah. And because it was so perfect. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And it's one of those things where I'm like. I think that identity is important. Well, you have you to, know? you know, the, the, I, by the way, that that's a hundred percent true. Yeah. And the thing is, is that sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't because as you, you know, program a nightclub, mm-hmm. there may be other reasons. And I can tell you, I mean, I still, to this day, no matter what's going on, am involved in every single place's DJ booking because to me, you know, what is the thing that people are coming for more than anything in my mind? If you've got a really cool place and the music is bad, people leave. Right. So for me, the starting point has always been good music, no matter what. Um, I don't care if you've got the most beautifully designed place in the world and music doesn't have to mean a DJ. It could mean Frank. It could be whatever. But the thing is, is that, it's more interesting to me as a consumer 
So if you're a local person, sure, maybe you're vibing with Eddie or whatever, but the vast majority want different stuff. And the thing that I've always, you know, kind of believed in, which one of my previous people who taught me marketing, Steve Edelman, when I worked in Boston, he was a mm-hmm. club Titan in New York. Uh, he really taught me a lot about marketing was, you know, he just said that if you go to a club or a lounge or a bar, uh, it's like watching a TV episode. If it's the same thing every week, it's boring. If you see the same band every week, eventually if you Rolling Stones, your favorite band, if mm-hmm. I go see them every single week, eventually they're not my favorite band. Mm-hmm. I've always subscribed to that theory that although you came and you're disappointed, hopefully the person that was playing was good, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully. And again, that's always just an opinion. Um, but if the person's good, you win more than you lose. And that's what you're trying to really do. Right. Mm-hmm. I just think, uh, I think sometimes a DJ, a resident DJ, mm-hmm. I know it can be like repetitive. I know it, it, I, at certain times it can be, it can be like, oh, this is like the same thing every week. I think on a weekend in Vegas, though, I think it's important to have an identity just because some people come out here every two months, every three months, every other month. And I think on a Saturday or a Friday or even an industry night, I, it's not the fact that I just want to see Eddie on Saturday. It's mm-hmm. just the, the musical experience that I'm hearing there. There's not many DJs well, that it's can a recreate format, it, though. right? The, th- the thing is, is that generally speaking, what you're trying to do is keep the same format in the same rooms. Right. So the consumer on the weekend that comes from out of town. So if you go to any club in Las Vegas, if you will, mm-hmm. this or whatever, I don't know, 85% of the people are from out of town. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't care that Eddie's DJing. They don't know him. They don't care. They care that the music's good. Right. And they care about the format, meaning okay, if I go into the main room of On The Record, I know what that format is, and then, oh, by the way, if there's this cool bus, mm-hmm. and they pay, play throwback music. Right. Right. They don't even know what that means. They just know, and then hopefully we serve it up in a way that is interesting, like you're responding to. Right, right. But they could care less. If, it is, if you're not in the league of you know, where you're going to see, again, Tiesto, if you will, they really couldn't care less is the truth. Mm-hmm. I care. We care. The staff cares because that's about the music. Right. But the consumer really doesn't care provided that there is a good product that is being put forth. And what I'd say about all the people in this room, I could put any of you on that bus and have a very similar product in the sense that, you know, I like to say that DJs are like, you know, going on a ride, you have to be a certain height. Yeah. Everyone here is a certain height. So Mm -hmm. as long as you're in that category, then it's really just a matter of opinion and taste and everyone's got one. So whatever. And then it becomes availability and then it becomes switching it up and then it becomes giving people opportunity because they're loyal. If Eddie plays every single day on the, you know, Rolls Royce and Pete Chowboy plays every single day on the bus, Mm -hmm then actually no one's getting an opportunity. And so all these people who might be playing lounges or places that, you know, they're doing because they need to make a living in a gig. I'm not, I don't have the ability to, you know, kind of pay it forward to them and give them an opportunity to rock like a better crowd or a more energetic crowd or what might be perceived as a better gig. So for me as an operator, 
I have to take those. I can't just have one or two people, even though I know that if I put Pete Chalvoy on that bus, that is the aspirational DJ for the bus. Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's that guy. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he know when he can create magic, everyone can, but I agree with you. If I put Pete Chalvoy on that bus, I could listen to him every single day, every single week of my life on that bus. Yeah, That's right. no doubt. But a lot of people want to play the bus because it's kind of fun and cool. So mm-hmm. I got to keep it moving. Yeah, cool. as long as you maintain the bar of what yeah, is expected exactly. and the format and everything like that, I get such a kick, especially on the bus, because I've gotten to see a lot of you guys play And there. some people surprise you. It's amazing yeah. to hear different pe- different DJs' interpretation of old school and how they're going to because you have a very broad palette brush to. It was to, like the first time I heard Zoe on the bus. I didn't know who he was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. And then amazing. I was like, and I I remember I think I talked to Zach or Pierce or someone or Eddie, whoever it was, and I was like, wow, what the f- yeah, yeah. <laughs> who is this guy? Oh my god, you didn't know Zoe? No, I don't know who Zoe is. He's a guy named Zoe. He was playing at Best Friend, mm-hmm. and yeah. he got on that bus and blew my mind. I was like, mm. wow, this guy is a real DJ. Yeah. Yeah. So the, it creates those types of opportunities when you switch it up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you hear a difference in the in the newer generation of DJs compared to the older? Is it is it very similar or is it different? I think a good DJ is a good DJ. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the younger guys, you know, um I like you know, for me the people that I work with are the people I like. You know, a lot of the younger guys when I go to LA clubs and hear them and I hear what they're playing to kind of you know, get that crowd going. And, it, and, you know, it's a lot of that hip hop. Maybe it's more down tempo or, you know, whatever, whatever you want to kind of coin that rap, if you will, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's not for me, but I'll, I'll tell you that um, like little baby, right? If, if you play, look, not a fan, don't like the music. It's not for me. <laughs> I'm surprised you know who yeah, that is. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm just saying mm-hmm. that I will tell you because I was in L.A., couple weeks ago and they played a little baby song Uh and i saw everybody move so i asked the guy next to me hey who is this Uh and the thing was is that uh okay i don't know who that is but i did see every single person basically know every single word of the chorus Mm -hmm. and move to it and have some type of like club dance and i was like what song was that (laughs) and so it's not for me but i'm agnostic in the sense that as long as the crowd moves, that's all I care about. Nice. Uh, I have a question. Um, when you opened Surrender, um, you brought in a lot of EDM DJs. Mm-hmm. What gave you the idea to bring in EDM DJs? Because at the time, it wasn't that big of a thing. It was Everybody was still doing mashups and open format. But with you, you I feel like you was like the first person to bring out all the big EDM DJs to right. Vegas. Yeah, I mean... That's true to a certain regard. I mean, you know, prior to me, uh, Neil Moffat had been bringing people into ICE, mm-hmm. you know, even way yeah. back. And then actually what had happened was is that, you know, uh, Encore Beach Club and Surrender, and actually mm-hmm. initially it was just Encore Beach Club, mm-hmm. the which was the old entrance to Encore. But when you walk through the doors to Encore where you'd pull up to the valet, mm-hmm there was a foyer that had three trees in it that was 4,500 square feet. And he came to me and said, Hey, if I give you the 4,500 square feet, can you come up with a way to incorporate it so that you can have a day and night thing? Yeah. And I said, sure. Actually, I had no clue if I could do that or if we could do that. I was just like, yeah, whatever. Mm -hmm. So now I get a day club and a night club. Uh And so actually what I thought the most challenging part was because 
Encore Beach Club I had worked so hard on that I was really confident in that because the competition to that at that time was Rehab and Wet Republic. Mm-hmm. Wet Republic was a, a hotel pool they converted. I was building something from scratch. You know, I had a lot of experience. Mm-hmm. And so um, what happened was is at Blush, I started toying with DJs. So I brought in for Halloween on 2009 Cascade at Blush and we did record numbers. Mm-hmm. I brought in Steve Aoki for something shortly thereafter and there were record numbers right before. And Blush is like, what's the capacity? It was there? 385 people. Yeah. Wow. And so um, I brought in LMFAO right before they really exploded. Mm-hmm. Had them on the bar, which we did all the time. I did flow ride on the birthday party uh, for my birthday party on the bar because mm-hmm. we would use the bar as a stage. Yeah. And so I was seeing that there was a huge appetite for those types of artists. And then in addition to that, DJ AM was doing Fridays at Rain mm-hmm. and Paul Oakenfold was doing Perfecto at Saturdays. And I kind of took that in and was like, okay, well, you know what? I basically, part of what happened was, is when I opened Jet Nightclub, I got in a bidding war with Stevie D for DJ Am and Mark Ronson. And, you know, in losing out to that, one of the things that I saw was we started building Jet Nightclub. And I had watched Hip Hop Honors where Kid Rock was scratching on stage on VH1. And I was like, wow, Kid Rock's a DJ? I had had no clue. But I was like, this is super cool. I had perceived him to be a rock and roll guy, but actually he's scratching hip hop and he's really good. Mm -hmm. And so I brought him out to open, which you might remember. I DJ with him that night on, it was New Year's Eve. Right. Because he came late. He came after 12 right. o'clock. He came after yeah. 12 o'clock. But we celebrated New Year's and I had to 12 30. <laughs> and I had to give him, And it was the first time anybody had ever asked me for a private jet. I'd never even really been on a private jet, to be honest with you. And he wanted like $12,000 so he could borrow Bob Seeger's jet to get to the gig. Oh, shit. And I had to pay for his fuel. And then the other funny part about that night was uh, I got a random phone call from Wayne Newton. And he wanted me because he had seen the advertisements for Kid Rock. Mm -hmm. And he he got me on the phone and he said, hey, um, I want to give a bottle. Maybe it was whiskey or whatever to Bob Mm -hmm. and put it in his room because they were friends and like wish him a happy New Year's and stuff like that. So I was like, what the hell's going on? (laughs) But the long story short is because I had lost out on the bidding war, I had a deal with Mark Ronson a handshake deal. I went to his hotel room with the Raj. We shook hands on it. Mm-hmm. Stevie just over offered on him and he stole him from me and it was all good. And you know, I'm still friendly with Mark to this day. He just played here recently and I have all the respect of course for him in the entire world in regards to DJing, producing and everything. He's a godfather. Mm-hmm. He's on Mount Rushmore. And also that same instance happened to me as I was with my family in Martha's vineyard on vacation. And I actually had a deal with AM. I brought him back and Shecky was kind of the conduit to that deal. Mm-hmm. And so it was the resident DJs were going to be Stretch Armstrong, Mark Ronson and uh, DJ AM for Jet. Mm-hmm. So Stevie like over offered by some ridiculous amount of money, which I didn't have the ability to kind of counter. Yeah. 
And so I kind of went one for three on the DJs. And so AM ended up becoming, you know, the superstar, superstar. of Las Vegas right, and yeah. was really, if you had him at your club, you know, he put pure on the map really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was, is in Las Vegas, I was sitting there kind of analyzing the marketplace and I was saying, you know what, Steve Aoki at that time, you know, was really kind of, he was edgy because he had a hip hop background and everybody I had started listening on BPM on Sirius radio. I got it on my, uh, in my car and, and mm -hmm. BPM I was listening to all the time mm -hmm. and he had a, uh, song or remix or both of Kid Cudi Pursuit mm -hmm. of Happiness yeah. mm -hmm. and I was like I, this is exactly what I'm looking for EDM with a hip hop edge so reached out actually to Shecky and I said you know what Paul Oakenfold's the musical director of or no AM's the musical director of the Palms I don't even know what that means but I'm gonna <laughs> see if Steve who's got this kind of darker edgier you know hip hop meets EDM background mm -hmm. that he's going in that really is resonating with me. Mm -hmm. He's got Dim Mac. He's got a great look. Yeah. I mean, he was kind of exactly what I wanted for Surrender. So I reached out to him, made him the musical director, made him a resident DJ mm -hmm. at night, which was that darker rock and roll hip hop, which I wanted for the night because really Surrender and Encore Beach Club were the same place. Yeah. And in that same time, actually, two things happened. Shecky and I uh, pitched Daft Punk, and you know I don't I don't know if he told the story about Daft Punk, but no. no. So anyhow, <laughs> we we pitched Daft Punk to be part of Encore Beach Club. Wow! And actually helped design it, and we actually took him out and everything like that. And Shecky was driving. Did he tell you that story? Yeah, or no? yeah, yeah, yeah. Driving and playing '80s for him and all this stuff. It was a great night. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously a gigantic Daft Punk fan, yeah. mm -hmm. but. Um, what had also happened was Cascade for the day was the embodiment of everything at that time, 2010. It was melodic. Girls liked it. Yeah, it was singable. Mm -hmm. Had all these beautiful medleys and everything. You know, in addition to that, he was Mormon. He was clean. And so it was, even though Steve is that too, it, but their public personas were so different that I thought that no matter what happens, I have to put big talent in this place because it's 55,000 square feet, day or night. Mm -hmm. Not gonna be able to fill it, no right. way. Yeah. So I need stuff. So yeah. in the beginning, I tried LMFAO, I tried NEO, but the things that actually were having the big successes were Steve at night, mm -hmm. which on Fridays was the first time at that time that anybody had affected excess because they had a lock on basically every night. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, when Steve was DJing at Fridays at Surrender, we were actually the place to be. Yeah. And Sundays at Encore Beach Club with Cascade were the place to be. Mm -hmm. So once I kind of digested all that, then basically I went on a mad tear. Yeah. And I said, you know what? I've been here before. I've done this before in Boston. And by the way, next time I'm not going to get beat out. So what happened was, is, you know, we started, everybody started competing right at that moment. Wet Republic Marquee came into the mix and they stole Cascade from me during the uh, night. And I still had Cascade during the day, but he did night. Eventually the next year after that, he did day and night for Marquee. Mm -hmm. But when we started getting into the bidding wars, the one thing that I learned from my experience in losing Ronson AM was 
I'm just going to pay more money. Yeah. So as an example to that, I, in one week I signed 31 resident DJs all at surrender and encore beach club. And I signed, you know, Skrillex. I signed Avicii, signed Calvin Harris, signed, uh, Diplo. you know, knife party. No, Diplo came actually about a year, year and a half okay. later. Cause he was actually playing at palms. Oh, and, I didn't know that. Yep. And Dave yeah. Fogg, actually Jesse came to me because then all of a sudden Jesse saw, uh, at excess that we were having success and he had done Afrojack one time, but I was doing regular DJs. And then the truth of the matter was that nobody really wanted to pay, play Surrender. They wanted to play Encore Beach Club. Mm -hmm. And so basically, you know, Jesse and I got together and we we're like, look, everybody wants to play Excess and Victor's not here anymore. So let's just work together. So even though I had Calvin Harris exclusive at that time for Surrender and Encore Beach Club, mm -hmm. the only way I was going to be able to re-sign him was to, you know, quote unquote, let, and I say let very loosely, but was to work with Jesse so that Calvin could play excess. He was a, is, and was, and is a really cool guy. So he still did like, you know, maybe six gigs at surrender on primarily on the Wednesday nights, but really it was about playing at excess at night. The bigger guys, because we had good relationships would do Wednesdays basically for me and because of their big contracts with the win and then do encore beach club. So every time that I got in a pinch, all I did to the agent was say, was, wasn't really hard because I knew the type of, we were making our profits were so big that even if I lost some margin, mm -hmm. I would just over offer. So it was like, okay, well he'll do it. If you pay him 5,000, fine, no problem. And it was just automatic. I would just, I didn't, I wasn't ever going to lose someone because I was grinding over five or 10,000 bucks. Mm -hmm. That of course became a much bigger thing down the road. But in the first couple years, we were able to Jesse and myself really, you know, kind of flex into our pocketbook mm -hmm. and really, you know, uh, capture a lot of the bigger artists. So at one point we had Swedish house mafia, Tiesto, mm -hmm. Avicii, all, yeah, all the best guys. Yeah, we had everyone. Top yeah. guys. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. we had the best, we had the best product at that time and we were offering the most money. Mm -hmm. And, and we also knew artist relations. I mean, Jesse, myself, many other people, Jared, we personally dealt with the artists. We made sure they were checked in. We made sure their keys were there. We picked them up in a Rolls Royce. We gave reimbursements for private planes and we did it right. Mm -hmm. And so all, all of that ended up, you know, basically letting us have the lion's stake for, you know, a period of time, uh, the best people. Mm -hmm. What was the projected budget for that whole thing? Did, did you guys realize like, oh, my God, we're spending so much money? Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course. yeah. Like and I then, heard that Avicii had like 300000 a night. Yeah. I mean, again you know, RIP Avicii. Yeah. Look, I'm not going to publicly talk about what people made, but he made, you know, lots of money yeah. and the club made lots of money. And it actually all made sense because at that time, Tim Avicii actually, you know, when he came out with, Hey brother, he was the biggest artist in the right. world. Yeah. 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 So we were having the success and Jesse was really tight with him. I became close with him after Jesse left, but that was Jesse's relationship, really. Mm -hmm. um, even though, incidentally, I was the one who, you know, at first, actually, I had a contract for him 
when he was 19 years old and um, had an offer on him, you know, very early on when his only single was Penguin. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we made a lot of money with Tim and, you know, he uh, he deserved every penny he ever got. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I actually wanted to kind of go off of like Chaos Just Closed. It was sure. a huge mega club, right? Um, a lot of the new venues that you've been opening, like an OTR, has been a smaller venue. Yeah. Has been kind of, as much as you have an EDM background, it, it's been kind of more focused on throwback music. Almost like, even when I look at the structure and the build out of On the Record, yep. it's like an ode to the 80s and 90s, if, right. if anything, right? Um, I kind of, you know, being kind of like a, a nightclub, a nightlife visionary that you are, you know, where do you see, uh, where do you see the nightlife moving forward, with especially with uh, large venues like Chaos, and all these inflated kind of DJ rates, and everyone, and you know, things like that that's happening. And then you know we're entering like an election year. I always tell DJs this, you know, you enter an election year, you know, everyone starts tightening up, the budget starts getting cut. And I don't know, you know, we always speculate that the DJ budget is always the first to go, go down. I mean, sure. where, do, where do you see, like, where do you see nightlife going in the next year or two? I think it's going to be kind of rough or I think, you know, and I'm kind of wondering, where, where do you see it? <clears throat> well, there's always going to be room for entertainment and talent. So, you know, the idea that, for example, someone like, Calvin Harris or Tiesto or, you know, Steve Aoki or whoever it might be, A-list DJs or Drake or whatever. Those places are going to be full. It ends up becoming an equation on how much did you pay and, you know, kind of what's the return and what do you spend? So there's this huge business that is very tricky to make those types of bets. Mm-hmm. And I also think that you know, one of the other things you have to have is space. I mean, so, you know, it looks like the Palms had space and they utilized it to try to flex, to go after DJs. It didn't work, whatever. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of good people that tried really hard to do that. Right, yeah. And so the only way you're gonna hit a home run is the swing. And sometimes you strike out. And that's, that's the game that you're in, I mean, uh, you know, I've had a lot more wins than losses, but I've had losses and my losses have always taught me how to hopefully have, you know, more meaningful wins. Mm-hmm. And as it relates to nightlife, I mean, in my, you know, in my mind, nightlife, uh, kind of the moniker. So I'm president of events and nightlife for MGM resorts international. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of coined our department as we sell fun. And so for me, whether you want to call it nightlife or daylife, you know, it's, it's the same stuff, but it's really just about how can I make it so that you have fun? Because if you have fun, I know that you'll come back. And so I don't care if fun is wrapped up into, you know, a big venue like a Hakkasan, which I like a lot, or Wet Republic, or if it's wrapped up into On the Record, which is actually concepted by, you know, the Houston brothers. I came in, I operate it, you know, we, we really you know, do the operations, you know, but this is their vision. I came in Mm. and worked with them to make sure that it was appropriate for the market and things like this. But that, 
the main club is actually based on their place in LA, LA Break Room yeah, 86. I've been to that one before, yeah, it's pretty dope. So the thing is, is that, um, and even the Rolls Royce, I mean, you know, the cool Rolls Royce DJ booth, I saw, I think it was Johnny, Johnny suggested, and he was like, oh, we want to get a bus. And then I was like, okay, you know, actually let's make it a DJ booth. So we had a great collaboration, but it is their vision. Right. The Rolls Royce, uh, Alex Ennis bought off of eBay mm -hmm. for 38,000 bucks and Mike Pampanella <laughs> chopped it up. Wow, you know, man. that was, you know, that was their idea in a different way, but we executed it. So we've had this amazing collaboration with them. And I think that people at this point in time, really what's happened, and I think chaos is an example that you, number one, you have to be very careful in terms of how you allocate resources to nightlife and making sure, and it's, it's not an indictment on the people who did the project or anything, but making sure you have the right company or operators, very, very, very important, you know, uh, in that. And I think they had some great people. I, I just think, you know what, at the end of the day, it's a swing and miss and they would tell you the same thing, whatever. And yeah. life goes on. And they built a really cool thing that just didn't end up working for one reason or another, mm. whether that's oversaturation, whether it's this or that. I mean, who cares? It's yesterday's newspaper now, literally. Mm -hmm. And so for, for me, I actually am more interested after doing so many big clubs, people get fatigued on anything. So it's like going back to that TV episode. Right. So if I give you the same thing all the time, and it's one built upon another. And I give you the history of nightclubs probably for the country and for Las Vegas. But if you start with jet, which was a three rooms, three sounds, and we had a disco floor on top that looked like Saturday night fever by John Lyons. And then pure nightclub, which was a mega club. And then Tau came and then Trist came and then excess came and we did encore beach club and surrender. And you know, even going back to body English, a lot of it feels the same. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what struck me when I went into chaos is when I saw the statue, I was like, wow, this is really cool. I mean, when I saw that statue, I was like, that's something I'm a huge Damien Hurst fan. I was like, wow, that's Damien Hurst. And I don't, I don't know what they paid for it, but I was like, okay, th they just stepped up the game in terms of putting this amazing piece of art in the statue. And then I heard, about the dome, and actually, I had done a dome uh, at Encore Beach Club. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was an after-the-fact thing, and so I was like, "Oh, great idea!" Because you know, we had always looked when I was at Win about how we could, after the fact, kind of put a retractable roof in, but it was so much money after mm -hmm. the fact. So I was actually jealous that someone did it in a real way, like as part of the build, and because I had done it after the fact. But a, a lot of it. You know, there's Hakkasan, there's Omnia, Chaos. I see the DNA of the nightlife in Las Vegas at Chaos. But in terms of that, the night club, I actually don't see anything new. Mm -hmm. I see the newest uh, stonework and lighting and all that stuff's really important. But when I went into the club specifically, I thought it was beautiful. I thought they had a great layout, but it was nothing new. Even though I knew they were going to go after the best artists and all that stuff. And I was like, wow, this is a really cool club because it is. Mm -hmm. So what I'm more interested in now is you become in the marketplace a victim of your own success. 
So for 10 years in this town, it's been about the DJ as the only, as the central point of entertainment. And what that really means is, and a couple things have happened, you know, that have changed nightlife, which is if I go see Calvin Harris at wet Republic, what it really means is I don't have to think about where the party is to your point. Mm -hmm. The party's there because it's slammed. It's sold out the best looking people, the highest end people, the best looking girls, best looking guys, whether you're looking for a guy or girl, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And so actually I think what happened is twofold is that there've been a lot of those things. They're more available. So when you used to go see David Guetta as an example, he had been to Las Vegas one time for Perfecto in like 10 years. And again, David's a personal friend. I think he's a genius. He's like one of my favorite DJs, but you can see him every week. Mm-hmm. So there's more availability to these artists than ever in Las Vegas. And there has been a lot of airspace related to not just artists, but big clubs where you get this visceral experience. So the thing that I think now is that it opens up a crack that there's been a, everything is cyclical. So every 10 years, let's just say music changes, or maybe it's even less, but Mm -hmm. whether it's been, you know, usually music is defined by decades, whether it's the seventies or eighties or, you know, nineties or whatever, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. there's, there's, that's just life. I mean, it's, it's ups and downs and it's, karma it's breathe in it's breathe out it's all that stuff and my point is is that because this segment has taken up so much airspace for so long that there's opportunity to now do new things and the reason the other reason you know i think why people went to the party and again defined by whoever the best dj for the past 10 years in las vegas that's the party right but actually now you can swipe on your phone and you can hook up because there are dating apps. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go to the party. And actually, to be honest with you, now I'm, I actually am freed from having to go to the party. I could just go where I want to go. Mm-hmm. So if you're a millennial that doesn't have as much money and I can't afford to go to the hot party with the hot DJ because the prices are inflated because of supply and demand, guess what? I just swiped right on, you know, some hot guy, some hot girl. And by the way, she or he is 23, has no money. And we're going to meet at a place potentially that isn't as expensive or is maybe just not as crowded. Maybe it's as expensive, but it's just easier to get into. Mm -hmm. Meaning, you know what? Maybe I'll go to best friend. I'll still spend good money but there's no velvet ropes. I don't have to go through a metal detector. I don't have to potentially deal with a host. I don't have to go through this queue and all this anxiety with 50 security guards. And again, that is part of the experience too. That's really fun. And I actually think is part of that energy, but it just means that there's room for more. So what I'm more interested now in being part of, you know, a lot of different projects over the past couple of years of Park MGM, Mm -hmm. whether it's on the record or best friend, what I would call blended experience. I'm more interested in, in mama rabbit. I mean, mama rabbit, it was more about the same thing. I don't want to go to one place and do one thing. 
I want to mix it up and put all that cool stuff together. And so one more step toward that is Mayfair, for example, which used to be Hyde, which is a supper club, which is going to blend a lot of things. Live music, DJs, entertainment, great food, great beverage, theatrics, uh, you know, lounge, all this stuff. And it has one of the best uh, views in the, the city. And one of the yeah. best views. Of the Bellagio Founds. Yeah. So, the, so the thing is, is all that stuff ends up opening up opportunity for people to build other things that because something was so popular that people are just looking for something different because it's different, not because it's better or worse just because it's different. And so I also think on a last note that, you know, what was cool, I'm 45 years old for me, is not what's cool for my daughter who's 14 and is not what's cool for potentially a 21 year old. Mm -hmm. Which is just to say that even though, okay, the formula has been build this big, pool or nightclub or whatever it is, which by the way, will be around forever. That, that will be there forever. It's been around forever. It'll be there forever. Whether there's 50 of them or five of them will be the difference. But you know, sometimes the people making the decisions think, okay, this is, this is what I think is cool. But actually the 21 year old who's a new consumer, a millennial, a 30 year old, they just might not think that's cool because there's a generational gap. Right. Yeah. So, I like blurring the lines. That's really what I'm interested in now is the idea that, you know, I can get great food, great beverage, great DJs, great entertainment, great design, all that stuff and mash it up because I want to make it convenient for people, you know, don't want them to necessarily leave, which again is the idea behind Mayfair Mm -hmm. is I can go there for dinner and stay. And I can see a bunch of things. I don't, I don't have to just hear one thing. Maybe I can hear all types of genres of music. There's entertainment. Maybe the food comes out interestingly, all those types of things on that. And so Mama Rabbit was really a step toward the Mayfair for me because I believe that what people want is, and, and one last thing, as it relates to Instagram and things like Pinterest, people are more discerning than they've ever been and are more opinionated than they've ever been because they can see, okay, it used to be like when I was younger, I had heard about Spy Bar in New York and everybody said it was the greatest thing ever. And I went there as a 21 year old and I was the first person in line, my brother and I went, because I knew that if I had went a half hour later, I wasn't get in. I waited. The ropes were up. The doorman was looking at me like, why are you here? I was like, we're coming. He's like, you know, you're going to be the first one. I'm like, we just want to go in for a second, which because I was in the club business, I knew, but I had no contacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I went in and I was like, and then as the party filled up and there was all these beautiful people, I was like, wow, keep in mind now, if I go on Instagram and hit location, I now can see that party without having to do Have that. To, mm-hmm. So people have higher expectations. You have to deliver at a much higher level because, because of all the things we talked about, the bar has been raised. Just like DJ, if, if Neva's doing the same mix that he just ripped off from whoever and doesn't get creative, be like, oh, whatever, I heard that, that's whack. That's why you know, comedians, they don't want people taping their performances right. mm-hmm. because, oh, great, I've got, how can I come up with a joke the next day? 
Yeah. It's the same type of thing. So as it relates to like experiences, you really have to go out there and do your homework. And it also has to be in your soul. I mean, it's totally in my soul. This is what I love doing. I go out into the world. And, you know, the, the last part is you hire the best team that has the best track record that fits, you know, the company's persona for me, MGM resorts, mm -hmm. you know, we're all about entertainment and things like that. So, you know, you, you got to work your butt off. <laughs> and then even if you work your butt off, which I'm sure the people at chaos did, yeah, you could still swing and miss because it is what it is. And the only way you hit a home run is to try. Sean, we all got to know because we were stumped. Me and Neville were stumped on this. Well, I mean, you're a busy guy. You're doing mm -hmm. a whole bunch of, you know, big things. Uh, I, we really appreciate you taking the time to be yeah. on this podcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But what was the general interest for you to come on? I saw Shecky's interview. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. You know, I had seen the Road podcast because I we did a party uh, with you guys. Yes. And yeah. I, mm -hmm. I, was, I was aware and had seen some snippets of whoever, I'm not sure who, but actually what interested me was I listened to Shecky, you know, Shecky and I have been so connected over the years yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. that I was listening and actually, truth be told, I was cringing because I was like, oh God, how's he gonna like position, you know, a couple stories right. yeah. that we had both been involved in mm -hmm. and that, you know, <laughs> I'm always the villain. And so, <laughs> especially against Jazzy Jeff. Yep, Jazzy Jeff. <laughs> so the thing is, is that you know, early in my career, because I had such an emotional reaction to the DJ. Mm -hmm. Like for me, because that's where I start. The music is the backdrop of your evening. It, mm -hmm. You know, the DJ is the drummer. Without a good drummer, he's not setting the tempo. And so the thing is, for me, is that I was immature and impatient. So I ended up getting a reputation for throwing DJs off, which mm -hmm. was probably um, earned. And so the thing was, is I was listening to Shecky tell all of his stories and stuff. I probably listened, I don't know, it seemed like it was a long time, but I listened to a lot of it and I was like, you know what? Uh, at least finally someone's asking like intelligent questions about DJs, club culture, music, because uh, in many regards, when I do interviews over the past 15 years, it's, mm -hmm. it's not from an insider. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it, it's not from someone who actually sees the whole thing and is part of that heartbeat. So there was never an instance where I did an interview. Usually I'm having to explain, you know, what the vibe is. Right. Mm -hmm. So when I was listening to the podcast, I was like, you know what, there's finally something that interest me related to clubs i have i've never heard anybody successfully and maybe it's just because i'm, I'm not aware of it mm -hmm. and because you guys I, I know you you're in las vegas you had checky on you have people on that i'm aware of even though i've only heard a couple but it was the first time that somebody actually in my mind was asking intelligent questions about club culture which mm -hmm that you know i'm a part of yeah. mm -hmm. so it interested me to have intelligent conversation and i also thought it'd be fun to share some stories yeah, yeah. and <laughs> you know i also thought to myself um you know we've got a couple projects coming up i think initially when we talked about it i was gonna really uh talk about like mama rabbit and what we were doing there right mm -hmm. yeah and now we have the mayfair which is coming up which is supper club opening on new year's eve and i yeah. thought 
I'm not here to really promote anything, but it ties in nicely in terms of mm-hmm. talking yeah. about some of the fun things. Mm-hmm. And then it just so happened that, you know, it fell on the day after chaos closed, which again, you know, the other interesting thing is, is in nightlife and nightclubs, even if I'm so friendly with Jason Strauss and Noah Tepperberg and mm-hmm. Dave Grupman yeah. Yeah. and all the people that we compete against, you know, so the thing is, is you want to win. But what strikes me is really over the past couple of days is I find it, you know, really the great things about Twitter and Instagram, you know, so you can see great places and hear great DJs and see great design mm-hmm. and kind of peek behind the curtain on the hard, hottest mm-hmm. parties and yeah. hotels. Right. Mm-hmm. I love that part about it, but actually what I don't like about it is, you know, there's all these people who literally Thanksgiving is two weeks away. They have families. Mm-hmm. Christmas and the holidays are right here and the new year's come and thankfully like pool clubs are doing their auditions soon and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But honest to God, it really disheartens me when I would rather rally so two things I'd rather rally around the people at chaos that lost their jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the way, everyone's sitting there saying, Hey, you know, these guys walked around beating their chest and saying how great they were and they got the new stuff. Well, what the hell are they supposed to do that as a promoter, you're supposed to go out and say, Hey, come to my place. We built something really cool and great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some people who are, are skilled and have been around a long time know how to do it in a way that is probably more easily digestible so you don't look like a douche or come across poorly or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But at the end of the day, who cares? I mean, the thing is, is that I don't want to attack people because they took a chance on something, by the way, that is pretty cool. It just didn't work out. I mean, that nightclub, even though I just got through telling you that there's nothing new, I'll tell you, it's one of the best nightclubs in the city for sure. Meaning, the way it looks, the way it feels. And the pool, again, that statue I thought was a huge, you know, uh, kind of ballsy move to put that giant piece of art. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so for me, you know, big swings, big misses sometimes. Yeah. But again, mm-hmm. I go back to the idea that it's a home run. So my only point is, is I just wish this community in general and in Las Vegas would more rally around the people that lost their job than take the opportunity to make memes about, you know, whatever they're doing at chaos and all the people who are there and all that stuff. I'll tell you what, I think that's total bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I just wish that, and again, I'm not sitting here on my high horse, but again, if you have a friend that has a family, I got a 14 year old daughter and they lose their job before the holidays and it's not their fault. And by the way, it's no one's fault. Mm-hmm. It's really no one's fault. They just have a missed business opportunity that didn't work out. But instead of, you know, pounding on these people that whether they're at the top or they're a waitress or whatever, you know what? I wish people had more empathy and sympathy for those people because whether it's the holidays, which is two weeks away, mm-hmm. imagine being unemployed and now not having a paycheck and it's Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And again, that's no one's fault. 
it was a it was a missed opportunity. So my point on the day after the chaos closes is that you know I just wish that people would have a little bit you know would feel a little bit uh, and rally around all the people that work there, including the people that were beating their chest, saying they were going to be the best. Yeah, yeah. If you're not trying to be the best, you're not trying hard enough. That is a fact. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully the Mayfair will pick up some of that stuff. We worked really yeah. hard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look, we worked really hard. And, you know, the other good thing is is Mayfair is opening. And get some of that we staff, just had yeah. castings. And the other yeah. good news is is that Gem is reopening. You know, we're doing casting call in about a month. And I saw all the pool clubs are opening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the good news for a lot of those people is that there are going to be a lot of jobs coming on the market on the first of the year. So that's the good news, thankfully, Mm -hmm. because had this happened maybe a few months back, who knows if those opportunities would have been there. Yeah. You know, and that's a large thing that you think about nowadays as you being president, right? Of entertainment and everything. Yeah. No, actually to tell you the truth, um, you know, I, I take a personal responsibility toward the well-being of the people that I work with. I mean, Mm -hmm. when people sit there and say, Hey, I want to go work at MGM Resorts first and foremost, led by Jim Murren, the chairman, who I work for, who's the leader of the company. That's where it starts. But then as it trickles down to a person like myself, they sit there and they say, here's a guy, you know, who has success doing things over these years. So if on my goodwill will and reputation and body of work, I can get really good employees to come and be part of MGM Resorts then I have an obligation to work really hard to show up and to hold the people that we work with that are making the decisions to a certain standard. By the way, I got that early on. And so if you kind of, you know, again, if you have, there's nothing worse when I was a promoter, when you do a party, when I was 19 years old, you'd do a party, the staff would be pumped, you'd tell them it'd be great, and there'd be 120 people and they're expecting 1,200. The way that you learn to have that not happen again is to sit in that club all night long till it closes and hear people talk to you about, hey, how's next week going to be? If you go in and you leave, that, that's, you know, my, that, that's chicken. You know, that, that's a coward's way. So early yeah. on in my career, I forced myself to go in on the bad nights too mm-hmm. because it just, oh, you know what? The good news about a nightclub is you got the next day or the next week. But as it relates to the next week, if I was doing a weekly party, I knew that that next morning I was going to wake up and I was going to work really hard, at least to make it better. Mm-hmm. And so, but, but again, it's about looking people in the eye. And then the other thing about club culture and living in Las Vegas is, you know, it also strikes me that when, for me, I see people at the grocery store. So, I go with my daughter, I'm a single dad, you know, I've got a great relationship. We have like a modern family thing with my, the mother of my child. She's like, she's like a sister at this point. But what I learned early on when my daughter and I would go to the grocery store and I'd see people that we worked with, you know, if you treat someone poorly and you're in the club and there's security and you're a big shot and I'll throw you out or whatever that BS is, right? We'll go to the grocery store with a five-year-old girl and you know you don't want to be uncomfortable in that situation <laughs> at all because you know your kid yeah. looks up to you so the yeah. thing is is that you know i never wanted to be in a situation where someone 
I'd see someone in, you know, my daily life and I would have to really kind of reflect upon how I acted. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would say, cause I've had some experiences with when we opened intrigue, you know, that was a swing and in, in a miss in the beginning. Mm -hmm. But the one thing I promise you is, is that, uh, that was almost like a modern day version of chaos to a certain extent. There was a lot of hype. You know, I was doing it. But you guys had a really different approach from what I heard. And I wanted to bring up intrigue. This was through the grapevine. Mm -hmm. They were like, we've had a nightmare with DJs. We're not going to focus on the DJs. We're going to mm -hmm. focus on the venue. And we're going we're gonna to step away from social media, which is almost everything. what everything everyone's about. They didn't. Yep. I mean, you guys had a, an amazing room, right? The vinyl. I think you had a vinyl room in well, there. Well, the only yeah. thing that was cool was the vinyl. Yeah. Was <laughs> we had an Eddie, amazing Eddie, waterfall. <laughs> Eddie DJed in the vinyl room. Eddie DJed well, in the vinyl room. Mm -hmm. and, then I, and I remember. Well, I can tell you, you all know? about that, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Meaning, and I'll tell you real quick. Well, DJ's like stealing his records and people were, people were like messing up your records <laughs> oh, and stuff. Yeah. No, so yeah. I'll tell you what that was. And that's a great example, right? Yeah. That actually at that point in time, you know, I was... I was the COO of, you know, the Win and Encore in Las Vegas. And actually, when that happened, that was this that was a flashback to me in my promoter days throwing a bad party. I had totally oversold it, and I'll tell you what. So when when you've done, you know, a thousand interviews, which I have hyping things and selling things and explaining to people why you think they should come, etc you become media savvy. So the two things that I kind of latched onto with Intrigue is, number one at that point, we had a huge entertainment payroll and we really didn't want to, meaning myself and Jesse at that point. Jesse left in August prior to the April of that year. So basically that was gonna be our kind of joint thing and we felt like that, you know, Jesse was really kind of great with the, the front people, he, I mean, he's the most connected guy, celebrities and models and all these different things. He really, you know, is so much better at being a front person than, than myself. And he's also very good at the back end as well. But I, I was always more of like the equivalent of a gym rat, like an office rat, if you will. That, that was my skill set. And so I figured, and Jesse and I both figured, hey, you know what? We're getting huge pressure to change trist over we'll figure it out between the two of us we'll figure it out and so jesse ends up you know resigning because his contract's up and i end up being there and what happened was is i actually took my eye off the ball but i knew that if i went into the marketplace and i'll tell you the social media thing too because i remember it like it was yesterday I said, you know what, this is going to be a club because the DJs, and this was in 2015 or 16, mm -hmm. or whatever year it was, 15? 16. 16. 16. Okay, 16. 16, yeah. The DJs were so popular. I was like, you know what, if I just basically tell everybody that, you know what, the DJ culture is like kind of waning and we're going to do other stuff, that I, I can get some traction on that and that can become one of my talking points. So I went out with that. And then the other thing was, is the thing I was in, so in intrigue, the thing that I was really passionate about was there was a kitchen next to Trist, which became the vinyl parlor. Mm -hmm. And I went to Roger Thomas at the time and 
we were initially several years prior we were working on a dj booth that was a piano that looked like elton john's piano from the red uh, million dollar piano million dollar piano and i was like you know why does the dj booth always have to look like a dj booth why couldn't it look like a piano let's let and he was like oh my god the elton john thing whatever so it started there because i was like and he you know worked on that and then i had seen i forgot what i had seen roger do but i had someone I was traveling with had like a Louis Vuitton steamer trunk and I had never really seen anyone use that and it was substantial. And so I went to Roger and I said, number one, the one thing I want to do is I know because Amy Sacco had done something that was, first of all, she had done bungalow eight back in the day, but mm-hmm. she had done rec room. Mm-hmm. And one of the things she was doing getting press and I had known Amy for a while. I'm, I'm not in touch with her right now, but I was, friendly with her over the years is rec room kind of led with the idea that it was going to be a vinyl only. I was like, you know what? I I love vinyl. And so we're going to build these. I want the room to kind of look like a Louis Vuitton steamer. And I want to have personal lockers that reflect that. And I want to put vinyl albums around the room and, but I want to make it like it's a piece of art because vinyl covers are art. So we're going to have, you know, it's going to be only vinyl. We're going to make this really cool kind of setup behind the DJ booth. And the DJ booth was supposed to, which again, it didn't end up working, but DJ booth was supposed to be based on like a library. Like when you walked up and checked out your book or whatever, that was the DJ booth. But what did work was, you know, the vinyl, which again on the record has, uh, which again, Johnny and Mark, this really wasn't me. This was them coincidentally, but I mean, so, we're in, a, like, yeah, we're totally. Vinyl partner, but vinyl so partner. I had done, uh, but what we did at Win, cause you know, at Win we had done polished Chrome with a vinyl DJ thing. And then behind the bar, I thought it would work. I'd always wanted to do a two way mirror. So I'd said to Roger, Hey, uh, let's put a mirror behind the bar. I want it to be two way. So the people that are in this private room can see out. And then what happened is I was actually doing an interview, uh, for the New York times uh, in the build up to, and they were talking about millennials mm-hmm. and all this stuff, right? All these key phrases. And at that time I was actually doing something called encore players lounge, which was the answer to social gaming to again, millennials. I get a little tricky. Right. And I said, and you know what we're going to do? It's going to be vinyl. And I could see, I mean, I could hear that the reporter was vibing with that. I said, you know what else? It's going to be private. Oh my God, that's great. Blah, blah, blah. I said, you know what else we're going to do? No social media is going to be allowed. (laughs) And when I heard his reaction, I knew that was going to be the headline. So I did it just as a gimmick because I knew I could get attention. So the thing that ended up actually working was the vinyl parlor And then the club, because I was so focused on other things and I actually didn't work hard enough, the club flopped in the beginning. And then what I will tell you is from when it flopped till the day that we rectified it many months later, and it ended up becoming actually a place that made money Mm -hmm. and was popular. I will tell you that I worked like 18 hour days for probably six months every single day. I was first one in, first one out in our offices. And I became obsessed with making sure that that became a real place because number one, I felt like my job was in jeopardy at that time because it was just underperforming. And number two, it was the same thing. It was like, 
hey, you went out there. This is yours. You own it. You know, you're supposed to be the cool club guy that knows right. what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And because myself and then I was able to rally our team, that nightlife team that a lot of them still exist. We all bought in and we all worked really hard to fix it. And we did. And we were also in the win, which helped quite a bit. Which is unheard of, though. When a club opens, has a... Very tough to do. When a club has a bad opening, mm-hmm. they're usually done in a few months. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you guys lasted a few, few years, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like well, yeah, three, I mean, four years. Yeah. So it was there when I left. And, and it closed after because I think they have other plans for it. But one, you know, experience is always the biggest teacher. Mm-hmm. So when Andy Massey first hired me at that Bill's Bar, going now back to 95 or whatever it was, Karma Club, which was the club next door, which I did Thursdays on, was the same thing. It was supposed to be in Boston, this Euro club that was 23 plus, and it was the most extravagant club ever built in Boston and all that stuff. And Mm -hmm. there was a period of time where for about three months it was super hot. And it actually bombed after that. Andy brought me in and... You know, through his and my hard work, we pivoted it from a Euro club to the club that I just described where we were booking Roger Sanchez on Fridays and Fatboy Slim on Thursday and, you know, kind of the bridge and tunnel night with Kiss 108 on Saturdays. So because earlier in my career, I had been through an experience where at that time, Andy had led the charge in saying, hey, we're not we're not going to let this fail like. There's 24 hours in the day. That's how many hours a day we're going to work mm-hmm. to fix this because A, I'm not going to lose my job, meaning Andy, and B, you're not going to lose your job and I'm giving you this big opportunity and we're all going to work together. Yeah. I had been there before and I knew what it took. It's just whether or not you're willing to do it. And even if you do that, it can still fail because I'm sure the people at Chaos, I'm sure they worked really hard. Again, mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know anything about it, to be honest with you. Yeah. But, you know, disregarding, you know, an entire workforce, I'm sure they worked really hard to fix it. I'm lucky also in the sense that it worked twice, meaning the the flip. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it was one of those things where when I heard the rumors about it first opening, no social media. Yeah. We're not focusing on the DJs. And then I heard just some kind of just some some offbeat stories about the grand opening. Sure. You know? Oh, it was disaster. Yeah, it disaster. was disaster. And I, I was just like, oh man, like, well, you know, so it's many, unheard of for the win to lose. Do you know right. what I mean? Like, you well, know? the other funny thing is too is like, so I was in front of that, and you know, amongst other people, but people really kind of associated me with that as they should have. And by the way, I didn't work hard enough either. Was the other thing in the lead up to it? I was like, it's at the win, like. Can't fail. Oh, I've never, I've never had anything closed, which I haven't. Knock on wood, mm-hmm. and everything has, generally speaking, in some way, shape, or form, succeeded to an acceptable level. Mm-hmm. Some are home runs, and some are just good places. Yeah, but never really had anything tank per se. Right. And so, what I found funny, which again, there's some local operators and bar owners that I was reading the paper, and if you go back, you could probably find out who they are. But I remember, and again, he's a local bar operator that currently has a bar in the city of Las Vegas, and I won't name him. But I remember reading the paper, maybe it was a review journal or weekly, Mm -hmm. about, you know, how we had gone wrong and how he, 
who had never had a successful nightclub in a casino could fix it. And I was so pissed off because I was like, <laughs> you know, this is, this is the Twitter society of, you know, oh, because, you know, because I know how to shine shoes, I could make a Tom Ford sneaker. I mean, again, it, it wasn't that distinct, you know, and I'm only saying that because I guess I'm harboring some resentment, <laughs> but I remember him specifically calling me out or by virtue, I think he actually called me out, but by virtue of this club's performance that was affecting my life, my daughter's life, because I was miserable and I was carrying it home because I couldn't, I just, I had to, I had to be in it. Mm -hmm. And again, that's why I have, you know, I really have strong feelings about when these places that are very tough to do have rocky starts or fail. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking to himself, first of all, you're full of crap. You couldn't do it. You've never done it. And by the way, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to work until I bleed to fix this thing because I don't want to let anyone down. I don't want to let mm -hmm. my bosses down and I don't want to let this staff down. So there was a few people that attacked, you know, at that point me. Mm -hmm. And by the way, maybe rightfully so, because when you put yourself out front right. saying, doing all the interviews and hyping it. So even the people that hype chaos and stuff like that, I don't, I don't, I don't sit there and say, you know, ha 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 or anything like that. I mean, they gotta, or, they gotta know. be a hustler. That's, they gotta hustle the, mm -hmm. their product. They gotta, you know, they gotta flex. How, how is anybody supposed to know about it if you don't tell them? Right. Yeah. Some people do it in a way that, you know, is more polished and some people do it in a way that's more verbose or whatever, but everyone's doing the same thing, which yeah. is trying to make a living. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. the truth. And so as a, you know, again, whatever, as it related to chaos, I, I understand that because with intrigue that almost happened to me. Did you know this guy that was talk, talking bad about you? I, I honestly, I don't think I had ever met him in my life. I had seen his name in the paper over the years, associated with some, you know, kind of different places. And mm. I actually think he's got a little bit of success in town type thing. Yeah. And I, I actually don't harbor any ill will toward the guy because, you know, I've worked on myself hard enough so that, you know, I, I try not <laughs> to hire. But if you know, I'm gonna call someone out. No. Yeah. But the thing is, is no, I. I I mean, I probably met him, but if he was standing in front of me, I wouldn't know him. Yeah. Yeah. But I can tell you right now, I know his name. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, Sean, man, I know we we, we appreciate you being great. here, man. I like yeah, it. That's definitely great. Great. Uh, great. What do you call Good it? Uh, I know you got you got to go and you got a lot of things to do. Um, and we're over the time, cool. but... I know Zach's like, yeah, we got to get no, out of here. We're fine. <laughs> Dude, we're good. No sure. Worries. Yeah, we you can keep going. You can keep going if you I, want. If you got some more stuff, I got 15 more minutes. It's 50 stupid. Cent in the club. No, yeah, <laughs> if you want to talk about <laughs> If you want to talk about Never's story, <laughs> go for it. You know, that's probably go been the it. most yeah, you, discussed Jay, story on this podcast. Jamie wanted to know what happened or how, okay, if that so really happened. Well, I know that Nevis told the story to Shecky, right? Yeah. Look, I, as it was, we, as you all know. Do you remember that night, though? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so th what happened was is, go ahead, you I, ask. I, I go ask for you. it. So this is back uh, in the light days in Bellagio. Uh, in the club by 50 Cent was uh, probably the one of the biggest records at the time. Ever. Ever. And then, I mean, I've heard stories about Mayweather to keep throwing yeah. money at Eddie to keep playing it and stuff. And... One night, never was playing it, maybe more than once. Yeah. And you got fed up. Yeah. Well, but I want to know the train of thought. Like, 
I'm gonna steal that because this is vinyl still. Sure. You said I'm gonna steal the actual record. Yeah. From Neva's turn. Well, oh, yeah. no, not, it, take take the needle off. Take the needle off. <laughs> take the record. Why, why the record is why playing? Why the record is playing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, how did like? I just wanted the. the I can't. The I still psyche. can't picture Sean I, no, I running can't. away with a record. No, though. I cannot. <laughs> okay. Well, Never was mad. <laughs> I was mad. <laughs> actually, so what it happened was is that. Actually, so it had been going on where, so in, you know, basically in my lifetime, two of the biggest records of all time happened to happen at the same time in Clubland, which was One More Time. Okay. Mm. Okay. And Into Club. One More Time by Daft Punk. By Daft Punk. Okay. And so it got to a point where, for whatever reason, it's like, go shorty. And all night long, you're hearing <laughs> drops and six, seven, ten times. And by the way, I'm not understanding that people are paying anybody or getting tipped or Floyd Mayweather. All I'm hearing all night long as I'm walking through the club is, why am I hearing this? Like, this is getting ridiculous. I love this song. So many birthdays were happening. Yeah, like, what's going on? This is pre-Serato, too. Yeah, so, like, yeah. whatever yeah. records you, you had in the club. Back on. Yeah, so it wasn't like you had was, so many songs. It was songs. all vinyl. Yeah, you, you, whatever you brought with you to the club is what you had. You know. But by I mean? the way, there was always enough records where... You didn't have to play the same record twice. Everybody yeah. always had enough records. <laughs> that record was an anomaly. Over over that, yeah. you know? So, but the thing was, is so I had maybe I had a meeting. I don't or, even think he was working that night. You was just hanging out. No, no, oh, wow. Hanging out's working. <laughs> I mean, you think I little? No, no, no I was working. Because I remember you had like yeah. your denim jacket on. You just, oh, <laughs> I'm you always working. <laughs> Can I tell you something? I'm always working. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm around, I'm working. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, is that I remember in some way, shape, or form telling everybody. I'm I'm sick of it, and and basically I think and never you can totally correct me because you probably remember better than I do, but I think it was hey you're allowed to play it early and late was kind of the rule if you will. But really I back then was even saying you can't play records more than once, and then I think the song was so big, eventually I acquiesced to where you could play it early and late, mm -hmm. and but it kept happening, mm -hmm. and so. In this particular night, for whatever reason, Neva <laughs> dropped it four, five, six times. Whatever it was, it wasn't no four, maybe three, maybe three no, times. He, okay, he must fine. have gotten a lot of so, tips. That so day. if I say, <laughs> so look, if I say five and you say three, let's split the difference and, and say four. Four, four. It could okay, have been, fine. Yeah. So Once every four. hour. So what happened was, is this is in what year was that? Two thousand. Two thousand two. Okay, so two thousand two. So that's seventeen years ago. Yeah. Right, I'm Crazy. 28 years old, and I am on fire by the time the third or fourth time goes. And so, you know what? I'm like, at the end of the day, I'm going to teach everybody a lesson, send a message to everybody. I'm, I mean, rage comes over me. So I run into the DJ booth. I think never, so he's playing it on the right side. On the left side, I think he's setting up a record for mm -hmm. his next mix. I go over, I take the needle, and I scratch the record. No, no, no you didn't scratch the record. Scratch it? No, you didn't. No, okay. you just took the Maybe needle, I took it off it and it rose. And the, everything goes dead. I take it, and I run <laughs> to the back bar. But the funny part was is I have it in two hands over my head like, oh, my God. Unless you run behind, you just had to run. And, and so, so the other funny part of the story, which now is funny, uh -huh. is that I'm hiding from Neva because <laughs> the club goes dead. So Neva's initial instinct is to run after me. 
So I, he, he kind of goes run after me, but there's no music. So, you know, he has a responsibility to put music on. So he, you know, he just puts on a record. So by then I'm already hiding (laughs) behind people and literally almost even under a table. I mean, I'm, I'm at the top bar by then and I'm, and now I'm looking at never around people and, and I can see, and all I can see is his head bobbing right and left looking for me. And so after and, and he's fuming and, and whoever the manager was, was it John Petty? No, 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 no. no. Liam? It was um, Liam, Liam maybe? No, no, no. Someone else. Andy Larry? Hirsch. Was it Andy Hirsch? Whoever it could have been Andy Hirsch. Okay. Andy whoever Hirsch. the GM was at that time. I see him in the booth and never's like, you know, breaking it down to him, like basically doing whatever, you know, telling him how pissed <laughs> off he is. And then finally, as the dust settles, 5, 10, 15 minutes later, when I think it's okay. No, it's not. <laughs> I go over and I'm trying to be like, and again, you want to, what happened at that point? I, I, f- I forgot okay. exactly oh. what happened. But I do remember that we had to talk. We was talking in, yeah. um, in the stairways, the stairway. Right. And it was like trying to calm me down, whatever, because yeah. I was like never, really pissed off. I mean, never, yeah. honestly, almost wanted to fight. I'm not even I kidding. Did. I ain't gonna lie. I and actually, there's someone in the middle. And I remember never pushing you know someone just because he's so angry not even toward me but just anger mm-hmm. yeah but i knew that if it was someone else he probably would have punched me or something like that but probably because it was me and we we're we we're actually friends <laughs> yeah that actually he didn't and so what i remember most was is never went back to new york because he was going back and mm-hmm. forth yeah mm-hmm. and i think he then didn't come back for it was a good month yeah he because like, at the time he was playing was, every weekend at the time i was you know i was about to move out here yeah. But after that incident, I was like, damn, I'm not moving out there. And I yeah. thought, damn, they don't want me out here or whatever. And so I had to get on the phone with Never and basically eat crow, apologize, and talk him to coming back into Vegas because of my mistake and his mistake. Yeah. Yeah. So I apologize, <laughs> which I apologized after the fact. I apologized after Sean, the fact. Sean, back in those days, you used to hide a lot. Yeah. You used to like run and hide. I remember really? I at Jet. That. Okay. You don't remember that? No. I, I remember Jet. Well, I hid from everywhere. I was antisocial. I mean, it was really? more of a, yeah, you know, yeah. only until I became older, it was always weird because I was in the club business, but yeah. I actually was really anti-social. Really? I didn't yeah. I never know and that. And that's why up until probably even like 2013, you'd always find me on the side of the bar because at the side of the bar, there's a rope and that's the service well. So I'd mm. hang out in the service well so mm. that because people come up to you all night long, you guys have the DJ booth to yeah. kind of have a buffer. Right, yeah. right, right. And I just... I didn't know how to kind of cope with that unless I drank. And so it became a thing where I would go hide in the service well so that I didn't have to interact with people. <laughs> but yeah. do you remember you used to, I remember you used to come to the DJ booth and hide a lot. Sure. He used to I come down. Number one, he used to go in the DJ booth. Or DJ booth. DJ booth is my favorite <laughs> yeah. place. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and then he would even, crou- he would crouch down. You would crouch <laughs> down in the DJ booth. I believe booth. you. <laughs> And then I'd be like, what are you doing? And you'd be like, I'm not here. Well, I'm thank God. <laughs> <laughs> thank God I wasn't DJing. <laughs> yes. yeah. And then I'd see like Andrew Sasson just like oh, turning God. around looking. <laughs> <laughs> and then he like looks like he like a pit bull just like and then like leave. And you'd just be on your phone like, oh, my God, like I'm not here. Well, yeah, yeah I, I mean, you got to think 2002, 2000, those years, it, it, shit was insane. Man. It was crazy. I mean, it was insane. Mm. Very, very violent. Always love amongst Co-workers, yeah, it's like volatile, yeah. you know, and but very high expectations. You never knew. Yeah. You yeah, never knew. Sure. I used to get yelled at all the time 
And, yeah, but yeah. it was never anything personal. Yeah, me and Everyone Andrew would was. put cigarettes out on each other's yeah. arms. Like that's like that's <laughs> where it was. No, that's it was nuts, insane. Man. It was insane. I mean, that's a little crazy. Yeah. No, it was crazy, <laughs> but I mean, but it, it felt right at the time. <laughs> that's Sean, sure. do you remember this time when I was DJing Jet the main room, and you were like, I, I was playing like, uh, I was playing something, and you came up to me like, you don't know what you're doing. He's like, you know what, you need to play Kid Rock Cowboy right now. <laughs> And this place is gonna explode. <laughs> I remember. <laughs> that. <You> remember <laughs> that right? Yeah. And then I said, "Nah, I don't. I don't think so, man." And then you were like, "100 percent. If you drop cowboy right now, maybe this that was place the alcohol gonna, talking. <laughs> this place is gonna erupt." And I said, "Sean, I'll bet you whatever you want." I said, "Like I'll I will, I'll DJ next week or I'll DJ at night for free." What year is this? Two thousand six. Five. Six. Six. I think I was. Yeah, two thousand six was when I was still at Jet. Yeah, two thousand six. I left actually August of two thousand six. Right. This was like yeah. probably I don't know earlier that year, and I said, you know what, I'll 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 DJ one night for free, if that works. And you're like, well, what do you want? And I said, I want a bottle of I don't know. I said probably Don <laughs> P or or Cristal. And you're like done, and I dropped Cowboy, and every and the room went flat. Uh. And then I looked at you, and you're like. F you, fuck you, Crooked. <laughs> <laughs> Did I give you the bottle? You gave me the bottle. Yeah, <laughs> None of his word. Well, I was probably still caught up in the Kid Rock thing because we had him on New Year's at yeah, Jet. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then we, we actually brought him back in the second time. The second it time was, we did was it yeah, with Billy Gibbons, yeah, right? Yeah, it wasn't quite as electric, yeah. so maybe mm -hmm. I was caught up in the buzz of uh, the opening of the club. No, I thought it was, I thought it was cool that you got the bottle, though, afterwards. Yeah, yeah, I live yeah. up to my guys. <laughs> Yo, Sean, I wanted to ask, maybe for me and Jamie more so, because sure. we were probably really young at the time. I, maybe I was of age, but we really don't. We, I, I've never gotten a clear story of what happened with Jazzy Jeff. Yeah. And I just wanted to hear it from you. Sure. So, I mean, the long story short, I think that that is also an instance of, you know, me and my immaturity, meaning that I used to be so quick to, uh, you know, act. And, and actually, the truth was I didn't ever care who it was, was the truth. And so the thing is, is obviously, you know, kind of looking back on my career, that was a regrettable moment. But really, it was a thing between Sheck and I in the sense that my expectation going into that evening because if uh if you remember that was in edm time yes mm -hmm. yeah and so the way i remember it and again it's all good Sheck and i are good you know we had a lot of angst over it you know i've apologized for it and and actually it's one of the most regrettable moments in my career in terms of who cares i should have just gone home but at the end of the day my expectation of that evening was that there was going to be ED, you know, that it, the format was going to be kept intact, which, by the way, may be dumb of me to think that, you know, somebody who does a certain thing is going to adapt or whatever. But going into that night, that was actually my expectation. Uh -huh. And so I had felt like it was, it had been made crystal clear before we did the booking because. You know, I, I was just, I was like, look, I don't want to do it unless it's going to be, unless it's going to be that. Right. And so that was my recollection of that evening. And then what ended up happening was, is it wasn't that. And I'd also said to Sheck, which again, was just really unfortunate because, you know, the best DJ I've ever heard in my entire life is DJ AM. It's not even, you know, it just, he was the best, yes. uh, you know, 
trying to put in context, which I'll bring it full circle, is trying to put anybody else even in kind of second place. I mean, there have been nights where I had maybe because of the crowd and the energy and the evening and stuff like that, maybe, you know, there've been moments that are that exciting, but in terms of a DJ, I had really, so the unfortunate part of that, that about that night was it was because AM had passed and obviously a huge fan, but I used to have a thing where I would snap and it was just visceral and it's really taken me a really long time to be much more centered. And I, I think those things, not to get too deep, but as I work on myself as an adult and I meditate and I read and you know, I have a better understanding about life in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, but at that moment when my expectation for the DJ and, and again, I had felt like it was clear had not been met. I was just like, look, Sheck, basically if it's not going to happen and we're not going to do this I'm, or whoever, I think it was Shecky, you know, um, if, if X doesn't start happening, it is what it is. And he's going to have to come off. Right. And so that's what ended up happening is he ended up coming off and he handled it like a gentleman. Uh, by the way, he wasn't thrown out by the security of the club or anything like that. Just <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a myth. That, that was a myth. That part was a myth. The part that is correct was that I threw him out. Uh -huh. And, you know, the next day there was such kind of upheaval about it, rightfully so. And it wasn't until the next day that I realized what I had done. And I was kind of like, oh, my God. Like, and so what started happening as a result of that, so Jeff, if you're listening, I apologize, but, and then I'm going to bring it back to Jeff, which is that what I really realized after that was when I'm having a bad night as it relates to the DJ, which of course there are going to be some good and some bad. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you one more, <laughs> which is in, in my prime of, you know, being so it's really about being passionate. I'm really passionate yeah about the DJ and the music and the crowd. If someone's playing something and it's working, I'm in, right? And on that night, actually, it just, there was a group of DJs that were digging it, and I even got quoted on that, but as I looked out to 4,000 people, it was kind of like, hey, what, what's like going on here? It was, it was off, right. and that was my fault, not anyone else's. So I had one other, I think after that or before, I don't know if Shecky told the story about it with Treasure Fingers, no, no. So the interesting thing was, is Treasure Fingers, it's so stupid. And again, uh, I was totally 100% at fault, just like I was at fault with Jeff. Treasure Fingers, <laughs> I had never heard Barbara Streisand. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. So all of a sudden I hear, do, 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 Barbara Streisand. <laughs> and I'm looking at it. That's a duck sauce record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Duck sauce. Yeah. Who, by the way, then I was the only one who booked them. I, I booked them and I paid $12,000 for the duck to come out. <laughs> and I had duck sauce at Surrender because I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. But before anybody knew what it was, I, and finally, I had had, maybe you were there too, or maybe it was more Sheck, but I had had a run of the format because when EDM came out, we were still trying to get people to play it consistently and we'd have DJs come in and do like an open format set. And I was like, look, it's not, it's an EDM club. You're either going to play it or not. Everybody would say yes. And then I think that 
if your skill set is X, you know, you go back to maybe what you feel good about because you know how to rock a party. Yeah. So I had had a bunch of those instances where I had just gotten fed up. So Treasure Fingers, the very first song, he drops bar, oh, uh, duck, duck Sauce, and I threw him off. He didn't even get to the end of the song, and I threw him off too. <laughs> and I was just basically saying to everybody, and again, it's all regrettable, but I was saying to everybody, like, look, if you're not going to play the format, you know, <laughs> yeah. Sheriff Sean's going to come and throw you off. <laughs> yeah. and, and again, I'm just saying that. And again, all those things are stupidity, and what I learned out of all that stuff is if I'm having a bad night, you know what? It's all ego. And it's all my ego. And actually what I need to do is just go home and restart the day. Because at the end of the day, the DJ is an artist. And so there has to be creative freedom and you know ability to express yourself. Mm -hmm. And why am I the arbiter of that? I'm the arbiter because I'm the, you know, I'm the operator of the club and I've, you know, generally speaking, been right. But now when I have bad nights, actually, and I, I've had some at, at on the record as well, where I literally you know, someone, I thought someone was going to be good and they just really were kind of dropping an egg. And I was like, you know, Oh God, uh, I've learned to go home. And so over the years now, what I do is I just, I fall back on that and I go home. But you know, as I said, the, the jazzy Jeff thing of everything in my 20 year career is probably my most regrettable. And the thing that is hard for me to talk about, but it is what it is. The past yeah. is the past. And then now coming full circle, the best night that I've ever had at on the record was Jazzy Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honest to God, he played on, uh, on a Saturday in like June around. Yeah. June 18th. I think Yep, Saturday June, in June. June 19th or something. And it was, it was m like magic. And I was just like, wow, can, can you believe full Thanks. circle? And the other great part was, is Shecky was there hanging out and I was just like, you know what, this kind of feels like, you know, putting a bad incident behind. And actually I almost felt like that night, I, I almost felt like I had to go up to Jeff and like acknowledge it in some way. Mm -hmm. But I was like, it's, it's not appropriate, you know? And then I was just thinking to myself, you know what, it was I think anybody who was there, I don't know who was there, but uh, for everybody, for anybody who was there, you know, I was kind of thinking to myself, this is a better way to end it. Like this is the right. appropriate way yeah. to yeah. put this, yeah, you know, as, yeah. a, as a bad incident yeah. and yeah. bad chapter in my career. So again, you know, always apologize. And the other funny part was, is, you know, we had quest love here and yeah. I just remember him blasting me on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, you know he didn't know I was calling me like whatever this like loser club promoter you know just and everybody was blasting me and by the way you know probably deservedly so and then I remember uh, I got called to the president of Wynn's office at that time and basically being like like what happened like how is this like a major news story it yeah. had gone viral on yeah. Twitter yes uh yes. and all that stuff and I was I, I actually didn't understand the power of social media mm -hmm. until Especially that day. it was just the beginning actually yeah. Yeah. the beginning yeah. of Twitter yeah. 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 yeah next yeah. thing I knew I woke up and really I was just like wait what what's going on I mean <laughs> yes it was horrible and all that stuff but I I don't remember it being like you know, I took nine security guards and I like threw Jazzy Jeff out of the club or anything like that. Like I remember it being, yeah, it, it, <laughs> again, it was a bad situation, which again was a hundred percent my fault. 
But actually, that was one of the days where I realized the power of social media because I was, it seemed like the entire world. And then I, I knew because that was when Cascade was doing his party. Uh-huh. And I remember him texting me and I get a text from Cascade being like, it, all it said was, hey, what happened last night? Oh, and I'm looking at it. And I'm like, I was like, question mark. I'm like, what do you mean? Yeah. He's like, Jazzy Jeff, question mark. And I was like, you know, I was just like, and, and, you know, so my response was whatever it was. But I'm like, how did you like see about this? He's yeah. like, like, dude, like, you know, Twitter, like cap, <laughs> capital Twitter or something. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, like everybody knows you know yeah. he's like oh yeah like everybody's like talking about it i'm like oh boy i'm gonna go hide for a few days yeah. <laughs> and then i actually ended up r.i.p who i loved robin leach too that night i actually had to do an interview with robin leach mm-hmm. and kind of try to set the record straight which also came out bad you know when i look even back on uh that interview that i did with robin which wasn't anything you know i didn't say anything bad i, I put my spin on it if you will which right. was which was honestly just, which was exactly what I just told you probably. If you look it up and you were to put Las Vegas on Robin Lee, Sean Christie, that type of thing. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, more important than that, I, meaning me, I screwed up that AM memorial and I was such a diehard fan of his. And so the thing, it really wasn't even about Jeff. It was more about that I had, you know, kind of screwed that up. Um, and I still have the T-shirt from that night that we did. I for still it. have that T-shirt yeah. as well. I still have it too, mm-hmm. and it's in my closet. And actually, every time I look at it, I'm like, I think to myself, number one, I try not to forget about it because I want it to be a lesson to. Again, that's all ego. Yeah. I mean, that's all ego. That's on me. So regardless of even the conversations that I did have with Shecky about that evening, who cares? Like it was about something else and I made it about me. And so that was one of the best lessons that came at the expense of a lot of people that were having a tough time with something. Yeah. And so the idea that I did that 10 years later, I sit here and it's embarrassing. It's the first time I've ever talked about it. Oh, I appreciate it. No, no, all good. Because actually I'm glad I'm talking about it. Uh, not, you know, not to say that it's right. I, I feel like I can only really talk about it because you know, and again, if, if, if Jeff were to hate me forever, I would get it. You know, I, I, we never talked about it, but because he came here, he played, it was like one of the best nights ever. I kind of feel licensed 10 years later to kind of talk about it yeah. <laughs> and, and to say, and to also say that it, you know, a hundred percent my fault, regardless of anything. Well, he posted on Instagram yeah. about that night and he had a, he had a was really good recently or after like the, after, day after like the, the day after he did on the record. Yeah. yeah the and right like, party with the wrong, whatever that, what he said. And he's, it was actually touching. He oh, said, really I've always good. had a, you know, I've had a rocky relationship with Las okay, Vegas right. and yes, that's and, right. But on the record, does it right? You know, this oh, you're is saying the after the, on the record. Yeah. After after oh yeah. I saw that. Yeah. It was, which was great. No, but the tweet that, came right after the incident the excess yeah w- the oh, surrender incident the surrender, yeah. yeah it was like it was like you know the, the right party with the wrong or something like like he had said something that was like five words and i i saw it and i was like Ugh. i was like he's 100 <laughs> basically inferring it was the right thing at the wrong place and so mm-hmm. when i read the uh post on the record uh post that right. had said you know this was like kind of the first time he'd been back 
I was happy that in some way I was a part of that yeah. mm -hmm. because I had also felt responsible for the idea that, you know, for all that time, that incident, you know, had cast a shadow over, by the way, myself in terms of a lot of DJs and, and my relationships with them. And actually to tell you the truth, checking my relationship for a bit of time after that, you know, I don't know how long, but there was a period of time where it damaged my relationship. So even on a personal level, I was really disappointed in myself as it related to me, you know, cause Shecky's one of my best friends in the entire world. He's like a brother. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, like, would I do that to my brother? Yeah. No. Yeah. Why did I do it to Shecky? But again, in the moment, I just used to have a hair trigger and I swear it didn't matter who it was. I mean, it could be, you know, whoever or whoever I just, it was, it just was, you know, and it took all these years to, mature and to realize that again, who the hell am I? I mean, it's about it's ego. So I try to put the ego and as, um, you know, to end on a, on a note reflecting on am, which he would always say, which in his Twitter, which he would say, you know, starve the ego, feed the soul, yeah. Yeah. you know, yeah. so mm -hmm. RIP DJ am. Yeah. Oh yeah. And Avicii. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yes. And Sean, thank you so much yep. for uh, yeah. giving us cool. time. I, yeah. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you. On. I'm glad you asked that question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was Jamie's question. I just before. Oh. If I say it wrong, I might get fired from best friends. Best friend. Okay. Yeah. Somebody else needs to say. It. I'm gonna be like, <laughs> no Korean barbecue yeah. for him. Jake will cut it out. What do you call it? Yo, Sean Christie. Thanks cool. for coming on. Appreciate man. it so much. And I apologize for never to. <laughs> <laughs> no need for that. Cool. <laughs> and uh, and then we're actually going to be doing a, an event at on the record December fourth with DJ City once again. Mm -hmm. But uh, yo, Jamie, you can catch us on youtubecom slash podcast Make sure you subscribe, comment, like, hit the notification bell. We drop a video, brand new video every Friday. That's right. And Goddamn right, we'll be dropping this video. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> um, and then also, big shout to DJ City, man. Yeah. Peace. Yeah. Peace. Get it.